0: Hello, hello and welcome to a brand new episode of leamy and jones goldstein's pandemonium podcast this is eric dellinger <laughs> wishing a very happy happy halloween to carnival proprietors nick leamy hey everybody happy spooky season woo and jacob jones goldstein happy halloween yeah happy halloween this is our halloween special following up mortuary collection last year and now doing something
1: wicked this way comes perfect for october and it's the first for us, because we're doing both the movie and the book. Dun, dun, dun! Yes, this one's going to be a little bit different
0: from our usual setup. So, I mean, we've done book adaptations before and touched on the original material a bit, uh, like the Dr. Sleep discussion way back in episode four. You guys touched on the book and that. But in this particular case, this is a book that all three of us have read going in. We'll talk a little bit, I'm sure, about the experience of reading it along the way. So since we've all read it we all wanted to to talk about it a bit since we had some context for it also because this is a particularly notable book for a lot of us and it's by a particularly notable author for a very special guest we have with us today. Hell yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah so this one's going to be a little bit different. We're going to go into a little bit of book talk. It's not going to be like a thorough like chapter by chapter thing but just some free flowing stuff talking about the book and about our experiences with Ray Bradbury with our special guest and then we're going to come back, and then we're going to transition from book stuff into movie stuff.
1: I like it. I'm excited. That sounds like a good way to celebrate the holiday. Hell yeah. And also my brother's wedding anniversary. So happy hey, anniversary. Happy Jerry anniversary. Hey, happy anniversary, Hey, Jer. happy anniversary. The only anniversary that I can consistently remember. Yeah, Jen and I should have gotten married on a holiday. It would have made shit so much easier. Clearly, yeah. See, <laughs> it's like we're, we were in the 13th, so it's just like, you know, the 31st reversed. It's so easy. <laughs> we're May 14th but we were originally going to do it on May 9th. So periodically we get... Wait, shit, which one did we do? It's the a countdown. <laughs> five, four, three, two, one. You know, you need a mnemonic. That is five, how does five... How does that fit with the 14th? Oh, you said 14th, not 4th. Damn it. No, nah, you're fucked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Like, who does shit on the 14th? Well, yeah, happy anniversary to Jer. But yeah, this is also, I know,
0: particularly apt with us doing something wicked this way it comes for Halloween is... Like I mentioned, we've all read it, but but I read it specifically because of you, Jake, because you had said specifically that this was kind of your I guess ideal October book or kind of the definitive October read for you or autumn read.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. It's like and I, I've said it over and over that the, the first half of this book and the, the what it evokes in the writing is the most perfect explanation or, or representation of what October feels like, especially as a young, you know, young person. A young Jesus Christ especially as a kid what am I fucking ancient here <laughs> yeah
2: back in my day
1: <laughs> well I was gonna say young man and I realized well you know women probably feel this too so I was trying to revise it in my head and I just kept talking which was the problem uh, and it just came out young person and I think I aged 70 like I was going around the fucking merry-go-round for a minute there
0: <laughs> so just go with whippersnappers yeah.
1: <gasps> all you young kiddings. Kidding! I I give up tonight. Look, people. so be- <laughs> We're recording this after we recorded with our special guest, and you'll notice that I sound very happy on that, and I sound very you know obviously brain dead right now. Between <laughs> those recordings on this day, the Yankees lost a playoff game, and then the Sixers lost a game to go zero and three. So like sports are bad. So just yeah, and I if I have one message to all of our our listeners that I can heartfelt say at this point. It's fire fucking Doc Rivers. All right. <laughs> I'll try to speak English the rest of this this recording as best I can.
3: See, whereas me, I'm going to be just like happy as a pig and shit through the entire thing because, you know, I feel about Ray Bradbury the same way, you know, Rachel Bloom does. So, no. Ah, <laughs> uh, I was wondering who did that. I, I remembered the... The
0: video. Well, it's more specifically, I remember somebody showing it to Ray Bradbury. <laughs> so there was like a reaction. Video. I did not see the reaction. How did that go? Uh, from what I remember, he just kind of stared at
2: it. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's out there somewhere.
0: It's been ages since I saw it. But I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, we'll, we'll fill you in later. <laughs> uh, fair. <laughs> so, yeah, real quick, just before we get into the discussion. Um, So, our episode before this, which is coming out on October the 24th which is appropriate because that's when Halloween comes early in the source material that we're talking about. Something Wicked This Way Comes. But our October 24th episode was Cure, the Kiyoshi Kurosawa movie. And we had our guest Trevor Henderson on for that. And since that episode's come out, the podcast he mentioned on there, the Mayfair Watcher Society, is now available. Uh, As of this recording, there's two episodes of it out. The first one's called The Woman on the Bus. The second one is called Scissors. I've listened to the first one, had a lot of fun with it so if you're looking for a horror fiction pod i just want to follow up real quick and mention that go check that out wherever you get your pods it's the mayfair watcher society and if you haven't listened to our cure episode go listen to that because yeah so talking good. with trevor was terrific so good but speaking of fabulous guests we're going to hop on the carousel and rewind to a time a scant few hours ago when jake was much happier so <laughs> let's hop on the go round shall we nope. I am so delighted to have the chance today to introduce someone whose work we've mentioned on the pod before. As a screenwriter, he's worked on Justice League Unlimited, Brave and the Bold, recent DC animated features such as Constantine City of Demons, Deathstroke, Night and Dragons. In prose, he's the author of the illustrated novella The Excavator from Neotex, which we'll be talking about. In comics and graphic novels, the list is endless, so here's just a small sampling. Moonshadow, Blood of Tail, Mercy, Justice League Dark, Craven's Last Hunt, which has a follow-up called The Lost Hunt, which is launching in June. Man-Thing with uh, Liam Sharp. He's collaborated with beloved pod icon Keith Giffen on books such as Justice League International, Dr. Fate, and Scooby Apocalypse. And very soon he will be launching the Demultiverse as part of Spellbound Comics, which has a Kickstarter going, which we'll be talking about shortly. But I am so delighted to introduce J.M. Demetrius.
4: Yay! Yay! Welcome. Oh, I can't top that, so I'm going to leave right now. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I want to, before we get really into it, I want to
1: toss one out that Eric didn't mention which I I hadn't known existed until we started prepping for this podcast, which is your album. How many lifetimes? Wow.
4: You guys have done your homework.
1: (laughs) Well, I, you know, we always kind of do a little bit of background. I came across that you were a rock writer before comics. And in the course of that, I just sort of stumbled across your album. And I just wanted to say that I really like it. Oh, thank you. I know it sounds a lot like pandering, but it's right in that kind of that vibe that I I like, you know, sort of somewhere in the, the realm of like Harry Chapin meets Bob Seger kind of thing. And it just, I've been listening to it for a couple of days now and really, really digging it.
4: Oh, thank you. That, you know, working on that, I was, you know, I was a musician and played in bands for years before I was ever a professional writer. And, you know, music is still sort of the heart and soul of who I am in a lot of ways. Nice. And working on that album, which is, you know, some years ago now, one of the the great creative joys of my life was working on that album. So thank you for saying that.
1: Well, I, I really enjoyed it. And like I said, it's on, available on Spotify and all of those.
4: Type and YouTube, I think all the songs are on YouTube, and yeah, all that, it's all over the place. Won't cost you a dime.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can purchase it on Amazon, though. So Yes, that's... you
4: can. That's true. You can purchase it as well. And I have boxes of CDs in my house, too. <laughs> 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 so if anyone wants physical media, uh, just give me a call, and I'll, uh, I'll send you a few hundred. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> we'll probably take <laughs> up on that.
0: No, this is an absolute delight. Because getting the opportunity to talk about Ray Bradbury with you, because I know you've mentioned before on your blog, on social media and the like, you know, what a formative influence he was. Oh, yeah. And you've been a very formative influence on us. So this is really wonderful to do. Uh, I'm sure Jake is going to talk about how he's read basically everything you've ever written for DC. It's true. In my case, you wrote the very first comic I ever remember reading or more specifically, the very first comic my brother had that I liked enough so much that I destroyed it, which is Captain America 298, which wow. is next to me. This is wow. not the destroyed copy, obviously. But Clearly. Yeah, it's the So, yeah, so this is a real delight. Thank you so much for doing
4: this. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, so related, so we're going to be talking a little bit about the book Something Wicked This Way Comes. So before we, you know, later in the episode, we're going to be getting into the movie portion, which is a book of Ray Bradbury's that we've all read. But I wanted to know, so how did you first discover Ray Bradbury's work and first you
4: know. you know I was thinking about this in anticipation of talking to you guys the first Bradbury I ever read and I was probably around 16 was Fahrenheit 451 because that was like the famous book, book you know yeah. and I have to say when I was 16 I enjoyed it but it didn't do that thing to me that Bradbury eventually did and I should mm-hmm. probably reread it because I don't think I've read it since I was 16 because it was when I was, it was an age when I was just devouring science fiction left and right it was another cool science fiction book but it didn't like jump out at me And probably when I was in my early 20s was when I read Dandelion Wine. Mm, And that's the book that just knocked me to my knees and my jaw hit the floor. And I started bowing to Ray, you know, and I just I just knew this was not just another writer. This was like an epic poet who uses the novel form, you know, who's Mm. I mean, he's just he is not you can't you can't type him. He's a genre unto himself. And uh, that was the book that really did it for me. And of course, then you jump into all the short stories and. And on and on and on. And somewhere in there, I read Something Wicked This Way Comes and enjoyed it. Didn't love it at the time, the way I loved uh, Dandelion Wine, but I have to hmm. say, rereading it in anticipation of our conversation, I liked it much more than I did when I originally read it years ago. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. Ooh. So I, I was like thrilled to get a chance to go back to it and revisit it.
1: It's come up a lot on our podcast, especially in our, our episode, Halloween episode last year for Mortuary Collection. I... I I have always kind of described it as the perfect October novel, which is sort of why, you know, he said it in October is it changing the seasons. is sort of a loose sequel to Dandelion Wine. And I always think about the first half of the book and how perfectly it encapsulates and describes that feeling of, you know, the seasons changing and, and you know, the sort of inherent, I mean, call it spooky season now, but the, the way October feels different than every other month. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: yeah. Mm-hmm. And October is a theme that runs through so much of his work. I mean, he's, yep, well, there's a whole book called The October Country, right? Yep. Nope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's just, and uh, to sit here now and look out my window and look at all the trees changing colors and feel the, the, that special October wind blowing by, I mean, we, we are in the Bradbury time right now. It's great. Yeah.
1: Yep. I was never, I was never a big Bradbury fan as a kid. My brother was, and he had, you know, he read illustrated man dandelion wine all that and never kind of turned me onto it he had me read one short story which was the long Rain," and the idea of it just broke me and it was like so sad that i never kind of went back until a few years ago when i finally took the plunge and read something wicked this way comes and i've been a kind of a fan ever since
3: i, I grew up on bradbury mainly on first off i'm walking into it okay so hbo had this ray bradbury theater show oh yeah HBO. <laughs> HBO. huh? <laughs> you don't say HBO, huh, Nick? Yes, that, that is correct. <laughs> when you were a kid? When, when I was a child, like huh. in 85, I believe. Wow. <laughs>
4: I remember it well.
3: Yes. I've watched all of them. I own them. I've just recently gone back to them a bit, and there's some really great stuff in there. And they, it's just such a, a variety of approaches and and genres he touches on. And there's always this fantastical element that just gripped me and drug me in every time. And I love all of them with a fiery passion. Uh, I've I read Fahrenheit 451. I've read uh, the Martian
4: Chronicles. Oh, yeah. Lots of fun. Those are very good. Oh, let me mention one thing before we forget. it. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this. Do you know Bradbury 13, the radio show? Mm-mm. National Public Radio in the early 80s did a show called Bradbury 13 where they adapted for radio 13 of Bradbury stories. It's all out there. They're all on YouTube phenomenal. Because the Martian Chronicles reminded me, because I did some of the stories from the Martian Chronicles. If you like audio drama at all, and you love Bradbury, you will adore these. They're so, so, so good. Huh. They did They did an adaptation of uh, Kaleidoscope, which is one of my favorite Bradbury stories. Do you guys know that story?
0: I don't. I know the name. I've never read it.
4: Kaleidoscope is about, it's a spaceship's going out, uh, and they get whacked by this meteor shower, and all the guys suit up, and they get blown out of the ship. So it's just a conversation between The guys on the ship as they're all drifting through space. Oh, wow. To their death. And it's a great story. And this adaptation is just phenomenal. So, any Bradbury fans out there, please seek out Bradbury13. They're all on YouTube for sure.
3: Okay. I'll I'll have to track that down. I know Bradbury was always a big fan of radio dramas. You know, he was born in 1920, so he grew up with them. And he was always actually angling at times to try to get them, like, He'd have stories he, he would aim for radio dramas that became novellas or other items. Right. One in particular I'm reading, right I just finished reading, was uh, Somewhere a Band is Playing.
4: And oh, no, That one, I don't know.
3: It's basically about this um, reporter who is going to check on this town that's about to get paved over by an incoming highway. And he gets there and discovers that there are no children and everyone there is just super peaceful. And it turns out like, all the graves are empty. Like It's just these immortals that have found each other and come together and their hobbies are to love and enjoy and relax in life and collect the great works and be writers.
4: And it's it's really cool. Wow, I got to find that one. I mean, maybe I read it 30 years ago and forgot it, but that sounds great. That sounds wonderful.
3: It's part of a 2 part I'm reading right now. I'm in the middle of Leviathan 99, which is the one he was angling to get for radio and it didn't happen it's basically a futuristic version of moby dick right like this space shuttle and the captain's like okay we're going after this comet and they're like well, that's not our mission he goes no nope, no nope. <laughs> we can we can do the mission but we're doing this comet first <laughs> it's, it's
4: written in play form right
3: uh i believe so yeah it's got, yeah it's got yeah. you know ishmael's the main character and he becomes friends with this alien named quell so it's Oh, it's beautiful. It's absolutely oh, that's gorgeous. great. That's oh. great.
4: There's a lot of also in the 50s there, because I'm a big fan of old radio also, there were two shows, X minus one and Dimension X, and they adapted a bunch of Bradbury shows for that as well that are really, really good. Yeah, Nice. Well, I I guess I took us right off where we were supposed to be. <laughs> no,
1: you're fine. Well, it's, <laughs> that, that's our whole process, really. <laughs> okay, okay. This is all we do. <laughs> all right. We pick a topic and then never talk about it.
4: Okay, that sounds perfect.
1: By far one of the most stream of consciousness pods out there. Talk about the script stuff. It's interesting that I I hadn't realized until looking into this that that's how Something Wicked This Way Comes sort of started its life.
4: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Him and Gene Kelly. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah, that would have been interesting.
1: Yeah, I also didn't realize that it was it was kind of an adaptation of an earlier short story, the, the, Black, the Black Ferris,
4: Ferris. which I believe was from his very first book. I think was uh, of short stories was called the Black Ferris. I believe yeah. so.
1: Yep. There's also there's an episode of the um, which I watched a little bit earlier today of the uh, Ray Bradbury Theater Show the Black Ferris. This yeah. Black Ferris, and I you know I hadn't read it and I didn't have time to track it down, so I just watched the show and like wait a minute this is all kind of familiar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then realize that that's sort of how this became life a short story that was going to be a movie then became a book and then became a movie
2: mm-hmm. but
4: you know that that from my perspective as a writer that's the way it goes you know you follow the story wherever it's going to lead you and you think you're going to sell it as that and you can't sell those that so you adapt it to that and then that doesn't work and you turn it into this oh what do you know i just sold it and then you can turn it back into that you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know that that hbo show i just want to say one of my favorite episodes of that is the one with william shatner called the playground you know that remember that one that's one's so creepy Oh, I just watched to And as a parent, as a parent, you know, you really connect. It's this, if you guys are, the other guys aren't familiar, this guy's son, it's time for the kid to go to school and he's afraid to really let him out in the world. And the playground in the neighborhood is like the playground where he was beaten up when he was a kid. And so finally he's got to let his kid out into the world. And, and, you know, all parents want to protect their kids. And this becomes a literal, you know, a literalization of that. So by the end of the story, spoilers on a 50-year-old story, (laughs) <laughs> the parent and the kid switch places Oh. so that it's the parent in the kid's body. Who's getting this shit beat out of him, you know, in the playground yep. while the yep. kid in the adult's body uh, happily skips out. And it's a very powerful story. Incredibly powerful. Wow. Yeah, I'll
3: have to watch that one. And there's another aspect to it in the Ray Bradbury one on HBO. I watched at least it was, it really felt like he was not just taking his kid's position, but literally drawing all of the sort of demons of the playground to him. Yeah. Like, like, so no matter where his son went, he'd be safe. And it was like, Oh
4: yeah. Oh, it's just so (laughs) gutting. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. It's. it's, And and if you're a parent, it's like, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. We want to take every hit for our kids,
3: Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. My wife actually yells at me because I am a calm, cheerful, happy individual except when it comes to my kids. So like, we'll, we'll go to the playground and I'll be hanging out whatnot. And and some kid pushed my kid up and I stand up and she grabs my arm and goes, nope, nope, you sit
2: back down, they're fine.
4: I know exactly what you mean. I, I am also very, very, fairly mellow in my day-to-day life. But if there's anything that feels like it's a threat to my family, like my whole Italian side comes out and not metaphorically, out comes the baseball bat. You know what I mean? Do not fuck with my family.
2: Man. That's right. That's right. And it's like, who is
4: this guy? I don't know where he came from.
2: Uh,
3: uh,
0: I'll, I'll mention on the the HBO thing. It's funny that that comes up. So for as much as a running joke on our pod is Jake and I, you know, making fun of Nick's opulent upbringing, uh, life of luxury since he grew up at HBO, rich. and we didn't. We were rich, but Fraggle Rock money. But despite that, it's funny, because it, this is a case where it's somewhat similar with me, because my introduction to Ray Bradbury, I know for a lot of folks, like we mentioned earlier, Fahrenheit 451 was kind of a, a book staple of a lot of English curriculums, but never came up for me.
1: Eric, if you're about to tell me you had secret Fraggle Rock money, I might just leave the pod. That might be too much for me. I did not have secret. I did not have Fraggle Rock
0: money. When we hit middle school, we got basic cable money, and that was in the early days of the sci-fi channels. This is when I was in middle school. And they used to run a showcase for uh, it's called Sci-Fi Buzz, which they would run on the weekends and would feature interviews with a lot of sci-fi fantasy authors, and most of whom were were generally, you know, interesting, but folks were generally, you know, reserved and kind of had more of an austere demeanor, except routinely Harlan Ellison had a running bit. So like clockwork, once a week, Harlan Ellison would yell at me for five minutes about something I had no idea. (laughs) But at one point they ran an interview with Ray Bradbury. And I was so struck by just his personality and just how effusive he was and how clearly passionate he was about fiction in general, but literature, his writing, everything. And one of the things he mentioned in there was his famous writing advice, which has always stuck with me, which is the advice of writing 52 short stories, um, which is, you know, don't focus on novels, just write a short story a week. At the end of a year, you'll have 52 short stories. And I defy anybody to write 52 bad short stories. That
1: number just keeps coming up, man. Yeah, 52,
0: I know, right? (laughs) But he just had such charisma to him. And it was so fascinating when I finally read Something Wicked This Way Comes with the vibrance of the prose, just feeling like this feels exactly the sort of prose that personality would turn out. It was like- Exactly.
4: There's no difference, it feels like, between the man and the words, you know? You can't separate them. Mm -hmm. Because just to listen to him speak or just to read his essays- one of the things I love about Bradbury, aside from the fact that I just love the work, is that when I'm done reading it, I want to write. Oh, it's inspiring. Yes. You know, it, it it just touches something so deep in me that I have to I have to express that. I have to write. It's just phenomenal.
3: I always feel with Bradbury, every time I hear him speak or I see him or, or saw him, more appropriately, he always seemed to be two people simultaneously. He always seemed to be this like eighty year old aged master poet. With a twelve-year-old boy's fantastical glee mm. and joy, yes, and, and just constantly at all times, both those people, and it just brings me such
4: joy. It's you know he tells that story because it plays right into what you're saying because when I do writing classes, I talk about this how you know you have to let your passions guide you, you have to follow your passions. My line is they may not lead you where you expect to go, but they'll always lead you someplace good. And he tells that wonderful story about being. I don't know, 12 years old, and he was collecting Buck Rogers newspaper strips for years. And then the kids sort of like made fun of him and was like, well, I'm getting older. I really shouldn't do this. And he throws out his Buck Rogers newspaper strips. And he's completely depressed and miserable. And he realizes, you know, this is my enthusiasm. This is my passion. This is what I love. You know, get out the scissors and start cutting these things out again. And it's such an important thing. And, you know, those of us that work in fields, I think, of like comics and science fictions and fantasy. We do. We we have kept in touch with that 12 year old because that 12 year old is where the excitement and the awe comes from. You know, mm. so important not to let go of that.
1: I think about that a lot. Like, so, you know, I was, you know, a typical kid, you know, read comic books probably until I want to say I was a freshman year in high school. And then I kind of put them aside to be, you know, a high school kid. Right. And, you know, it was something I always sort of missed. my My, my brother's two years older than me. And he started reading a bit again once he got in college. And, you know, I remember feeling a little bit jealous of that, but hadn't gotten back into it. And then I had a I had a medical issue my freshman year of college and ended up in the hospital. And a buddy of mine knew that I liked. In fact, he probably doesn't listen to the podcast, but my friend Bernard knew that I liked comic books. So when I was in the hospital for a few days in in college, he brought me comic books every day. And I've been right back into it ever since. And I was like, why did I ever stop?
4: Yeah. It's true. It's true. Whenever I get jaded, you know, because you can get jaded doing anything, everything turns into a job at some point. You're like, oh, God. all I have to do is in my mind, go back in time, find myself when I'm about 10 years old and tell that kid what I do for a living now. His eyes light up, he faints and I'm all good. You know what I mean?
2: It's like, oh, this is like an
4: incredible thing that, that, that I got to do that. What a graced life I have that I've gotten to do this. And then I'm ready to jump in again. It's funny.
0: I I didn't have a chance to watch as many interviews and the like with Bradbury as I wanted to before this, but I did watch a couple, and I watched two sort of documentary featurettes with with Ray Bradbury. And one was an old black and white documentary, and in the opening of it, it's it opens with him in front of his kids doing magic tricks, just doing card tricks in front of them. And then the other one I watched was was Ray Bradbury much later in life, and meeting with the artist of some of his old EC Comics stories and looking at the, they had brought out the original uh, actual pieces of the art. And he was looking over the, you know, the original art pieces and at the original scale. And in both cases, like just both book bookended, it, there was, you could see how he retained the sense of wonder and whimsy, you know, from this early documentary, which opens with magic tricks. And you could just see him lighting up, seeing this comic art again, you know, later it's, it was just it was so touching seeing that, threat of whimsy that stayed so strong throughout his life
4: well it's like the opening of the HBO show when he's in his office and you see all the all this wonderful junk that he's got everywhere you know (laughs) clearly the man never grew up in the best possible way
1: yeah yep it's funny you mentioned that his old EC comic stuff I one of the things when I was researching for this is that you know they talk about the autumn people and they Mm. say it a few times and I was wondering you know how much that concept ran through his works and if you google it the first thing that comes up is a collection of those old ec comics Ooh, and i you know i wish i'd gotten my shit together earlier to have bought it and read it before this but uh that's something that's definitely on the list for after this you know i've always loved old ec yeah
4: i've never read those stories i would love to see those yeah that'd be great is it an affordable collection
1: i yeah it was it looked like it was a fairly cheap collection but oh, i great. i gotta double back and find it again but it's yeah, I, I didn't even know he was involved in EC Comics. that. That's... Yeah,
4: and, and I, I heard some story that they basically went and adapted a story of his without telling
2: him. You know?
4: uh, <laughs> and then ah! he found out about it, and rather than sue them, I think he was completely thrilled about it and gave him permission after the fact and said, go nice. ahead, do more, you know? Because he loved comics. Yeah. And we should really get to the book, but I just want to say, speaking of comics and me, so years ago, I did my first creator-owned book back in the 80s called Moon Shadow, which was... Mm-hmm. For me, like a major turning point in my career of finding my voice as a writer. My first thing I wrote that wasn't like me working in the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe trying to be something else or somebody else. It was mine. And I was so proud of it. And I sent a copy to Ray Bradbury, the first issue. Oh, wow. Nice. And you don't know what you're going to... Oh, actually, I have to say, when I read Dandelion Wine, I wrote him a letter. I was so overwhelmed. And he wrote back to me this beautiful letter. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I send him Moonshadow. And again, I get a beautiful letter back. Just, you know, full of, I still have it. I have to, but I never framed it as crazy. It's in a drawer right over there. And I would send him every issue and every issue he would write a note back.
3: Oh, oh my God, it's glorious.
4: I mean, who does that? <laughs> who does that?
1: Oh, that's absolutely lovely. Someone amazing. That's what <laughs> it's, it's, it's neat to find out that the guy you think he is, is the guy he actually is. Yep. Right. And then
4: when they collected it and I, I, you know, we wanted a quote and I wrote to him, I said, would you give us a quote for the trade paperback?" Absolutely. He gave us a great quote. I mean, it was amazing. Just amazing. Just a lovely individual. Yep. Yep.
1: Well, I was a fan of Moonshadow, I can say, and and a lot of your work. So Eric wasn't kidding about that. Just to toss that out there and pander a little bit because (laughs) gushing on the inside. I
4: I don't consider that pandering. I appreciate that.
1: I mean, Justice League was a big one for me when I was younger that instilled and kept my love of comics all through these years. Yeah, so. that
4: book has had a life of its own. It's just those stories live on and I go to conventions or when I used to go to conventions before COVID. <sighs> and, you know, people people come up and they're like, oh, I just read this for the first time last week. You know, and that's what you hope. You hope that something lives on, you know, for so many years that 30 years later, people are still reading it for the first time.
2: Mm.
1: You know, it's funny. Baltimore Comic Con is next week and this will be the first convention I've gone to since COVID. And the, the last one I was at Uh, Eric and my brother talked me into getting Scooby Apocalypse because I was like Scooby eh," and they're like, you're going to like it. And it's one of my favorite horror comics of the past 20 years. Oh, that's
4: great. I mean, I felt the same way when they pitched it to me when we were going to write it. I was like,
2: what you know? <laughs> but the truth
4: of the matter is when it's keith i'll i always say to keith i'll write anything with you it's millie the model let's do it i don't care you know and it ended up being such a great gig i think we, we ran for three years and got to tell a complete story from beginning to end and it was really fun
1: one of my favorites and i was rereading issue 19 earlier which is the one that stuck with me it's the our our town one that just as far as a single horror type issue for years that's been up there for me i'll so, oh, really? have
4: to go look that one up because i don't remember it <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i do so that's at least something but yeah i just
4: anyway well this has been a great discussion of something wicked this way comes and we're not-
1: <laughs> <laughs> well to, all right to get back to the book we mentioned earlier about his writing and, and the nature of his writing and that's the lyrical prose in this mm-hmm. every time i, I it's like It's like eating fudge cake. Like, I almost can't read too much in in a sitting. Yes,
4: I felt the same
1: way. You could almost
4: extract every sentence and just go, let's look at that. Yep, yep. Let's look at that.
1: And there's a line that's that's sat with me for a year. In fact, I didn't even realize what it was originally from when I first heard it, which was, the lightning rod salesman remembered to breathe. And I I don't know why, but when I first read it, I just kind of hung on that. And I think about that line probably twice a week, three times a week,
4: Interesting. you know,
1: and it's, it's when he's, he's seen the most beautiful woman in the world for the first time encased in ice. Oh, right. And whenever, like, I, I think about it, bring things a little bit back to rock and roll. When I like first hear a song and it hits you, you know, just about the neck and the head, whenever, you know, I sit back and, it, you know, just, you kind of get done listening to it. And then I always think of that line and then the lightning rod salesman remembered to breathe. And in rereading this book, in diving back into that prose that's kind of how I felt after each chapter because you just get so absorbed and so just go swimming in it and it's just
0: that's it's funny you say that because it was in reading the book for the first time so I will be talking about the movie later I guess a lot of folks grew up on the movie before reading the book I guess this was you know formative movie for you know kind of a gateway horror film for a lot of people growing up it wasn't for me I hadn't seen it until after I read the book and I hadn't read Something Wicked This Way Comes until, Jake, you suggested it for a book club. Uh, We've mentioned before on the pod, Jake, Nick, and I all met because we worked at a Borders Books together and took part in a sci-fi book club. And for October one month, Jake picked Something Wicked This Way Comes, and that was how I first read it. So I saw the movie version after it. So somewhere in the back of my head while I was reading Something Wicked With This Way Comes was just out of curiosity, knowing that there was a cinematic adaptation of it, was working through in my thoughts of you know, working through steps of, all right, well, if I was adapting it, how would I do it? And it's, I won't get into it, but it's such a tricky proposition because what I kept coming back to is this is, this is not prose that is meant to be spoken. This is prose that is meant to be swamped, you know, to go swimming.
4: Yes. It. It's yes. exactly what I thought of is just to kind of, you know, languish in this. It's not, it's not realistic dialogue in any way, no. shape, no. or form. And I can see why it would turn some people off too, because basically the truth is, Everybody talks in Bradbury's voice, even the kids to some degree. Mm, <laughs> yeah. you know? The father is like the most poetic soul on planet Earth. Yes. And his voice is the narrative voice of the novel. And you either sort of go with it or you don't. It's kind of like Rod Serling did that a lot. If you watch The Twilight Zone, there's a certain style to Serling characters and the way they speak and they're very poetic. And, yep. and you either go with it and it clicks for you or it doesn't. I could see someone picking that up and going, eh, this is not for me. But for me, it just... You know, it resonates so much in my soul, you know? Mm. Yep. The other thing I found interesting for me, my memory of the book from years and years ago, yeah, it's a book about these kids and da da. But the father, suddenly this time around, it's like, oh, this is a book mm. about this father. Yeah. Yep. He's the hero of the novel, you know? Yep. It's really interesting. Related to that,
0: one of the there's so many high points of the book, but one of my favorite chapters of anything ever is chapter twenty eight of Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is I guess the quote unquote, the Tomcat talk sequence, which is the conversation between Will and his father. Oh, it's
4: beautiful. Yeah.
0: And similar to what you were just saying in terms of dialogue, it was, it doesn't capture any actual conversation that ever existed between, you know, parent and child, but it absolutely captures the memory and the sense of a
1: conversation between parent and child.
2: Yes.
4: The language communicates the emotional truth. beneath. Yes. It. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Dad, am I a good person? I think so. I know so. Yes. Yeah. that yeah. That's well, the whole, you know, when, when I
0: go up, will it, you know, will help me from bad things. It'll help. You know, the, the recurring you know lines of it'll help is, uh, yeah, that chapter is, is from front to back is one of my favorite things ever written.
4: And what's also wonderful, you know, since it's October is that it's scary, but it's mm. not scary in like an in your face, you know, like horror movie, rip your guts out way. Mm. It's just, you know the way he will describe something. The look in somebody's eyes could be the most terrifying thing. You know when the uh, when the guy goes on the Ferris wheel and pretends to be the the teacher's nephew, mm-hmm. and, they, and they look in his eyes and they see the the man hiding in those eyes. You know, yes, yes. really creepy, really creepy. And you don't have to go boo or anything. It's just creepy, you know. And and it's creepy with poetry, you yep. know. It's it's so poetic. And you know, kind of what you were saying is exactly right. He uses this language to get to these truths and these emotions, you know? So it may not seem realistic on the surface, but everything has got truth in it. If it if it was just fancy language without truth, it wouldn't matter. Right. But there's truth in all of it.
3: It's interesting, you know, coming back to this older, myself even, because, you know, it was just, you know, haunted carnival for the longest time when I was younger. But now I'm looking at it and it's just like the, the real story here, like you said, is this sort of existential dread. You know, it's, you know, the boys kind of represent the two ways of approaching life, you know, in a positive or a negative way. But in the end, you all kind of come to the same. Well, now I've reached the end of my life. Now, what kind of uh, things and how do I approach this? You know, it's like no matter how you see life, we all come to the same problems and questions. And it's like, oh, wow, <laughs> this, this, this book has really hit me. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah. And they're all going through. The, you know, the boys are approaching puberty mm-hmm. and a massive change, and they're going to start to grow up. And then here's the father at a totally different point in his life. You know, really stepping toward older, if not old age, certainly older age. And and those two things balancing each other is fascinating. Also.
0: Yeah, it the book does such a good job of of walking various lines. Like you just mentioned, it's from the character standpoint. You have all these characters who are. Or, kind of towing or on the threshold of this transformational period to, to one degree or another and between, you know, various emotions on either side. And then conversely with that goes back to what you mentioned at the onset, which is the balance of true terror, but also wonderment and whimsy at the same time. Yes. Mm-hmm. So even the tone of the, the plot elements and then just the overall feel of the book mirroring the internal journey and internal turmoil of the character so well, again, just from a construction standpoint, everything just is put together so, so well.
4: Yeah, even even in the terror, there's wonder and awe. Yeah, you know, and that's to me with Bradbury, what you always walk away from, whatever the subject is, is that sense of awe. And talking about Rod Serling the same way, that's what I always loved about the Twilight Zone. It to me, it's like, hey, this universe is alive and magical, and we interact with it. And that's the feeling I always walk away from with Bradbury, that this, there's magic is not not in often a Harry Potter book. Magic is right here, you know, right Mm -hmm. in this room, right here and right now. And and he looks, that's why I love Dandelion Wine, because although it's not, quote, a fantasy novel, he looks at the so-called real world with eyes of wonder and peels back that skin and reveals the miracles that are here with us every day, right in front of our eyes.
1: And along kind of those lines is one of the other concepts in the book is love being common cause more than anything else that really... I mean, I guess given our, our turbulent times, that notion struck me as pretty pretty prescient at the time. But it, uh, yeah, and that's one of those things that's, you know, everyday magic is revolves around some of that too, for me anyway.
4: Yeah, and the power of joy. I mean, how did they yeah. defeat this evil at the end? Oh. Through sheer joy. Hugs them to death. <laughs> Now I, it's been years and years since I saw the movie. Do they do that same scene in the movie with the laughing and dancing it's, around? And uh, be, it sort touch of, on it. yeah. Because I was thinking as I was reading it, this would be really. This works on the page; it would be really hard to pull off on film. And I didn't remember because I hadn't seen it since the '80s. I think
3: they save Jim with laughter and joy, but uh, Mr. Dark is on the Ferris wheel backwards. I mean, uh, oh, okay. forwards. So he gets super old. Yeah, it's
0: okay. it's a truncated version of what's in the novel, and and mm-hmm. the the precursor with the. Carving the smile into the bullet is replaced by
1: an extended version of the the house of mirrors. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'll
4: have to watch that movie again. I haven't, like I said, I haven't seen it since the eighties.
1: I, I had never seen it until we were prepping for this. So it was all, yeah, I, this is going to be an interesting chat. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's so
0: interesting from an adaptation standpoint. While you mentioned Dandelion Window, I do want to mention for anyone who hasn't read it, another fabulous comic writer, Greg Pock, has a fabulous poem that he wrote for uncanny magazine. Uh, about reading dandelion wine to his mother as as she was passing away so anyone wow. who enjoys dandelion wine uh, we have the link to it we'll link to
1: it as part of when we um, put the link up about this but yeah it's an absolutely lovely piece by greg bach so
4: i guess next summer i'm gonna
1: have to read dandelion wine for the first
4: time yeah there's a beautiful chapter in there when the grandmother is dying and she gathers the family together one of those beautiful that section of the book is just so beautiful so beautiful
3: Yeah, Dandelion Wine is particularly uh, important because, if I remember correctly, it's part of the Greentown trilogy, which is Something Wicked This Way Comes, Dandelion Wine, and Farewell to Summer, all taking place in the same town.
4: Right, right. And Farewell to Summer is like a literal sequel to Dandelion Wine. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, everything has to be labeled a trilogy or whatever now. Yeah, he, was yeah. writing, he was writing a bunch of books. He wasn't thinking, oh, this will be a trilogy, you know? That,
3: that is fair. Yeah. That is fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, when I was
4: looking on Amazon, when I went to buy the ebook, because I the copy that I have is so old and moldy that I didn't want to read it, you know? So I went <laughs> and I said, what trilogy? What trilogy? I read these books. They weren't part of a trilogy. They nope, were just no. books that I read, you just know? It's all
3: same town. That's it. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, something I read while it's not the same characters, Jim and Will were basically the characters from Dandelion Wine, just one year older.
4: Oh, that's interesting.
1: And Hmm.
3: and they changed the name.
4: Again, I haven't read it. Right, because, you know, Jim and Will are actually probably two aspects of Bradbury's own psyche anyway. You Mm -hmm. know, but I think, and the kid in Dandelion Wine is Bradbury as a kid. You know, it's fairly literal. And, you know, when you're writing, all the characters are you anyway. So if it's the same town and it's a kid, you know it's going to be it's going to be infused with who he was at that age.
3: That is the one yeah. additional thing with the Greentown trilogy is that, that quote unquote trilogy, uh, is that while they're not connected and yes, the characters are kind of representations of himself. It's also the town is a big representation of where he grew up. It's like the towns he went out of his way to try to, it, Greentown is a representation of, of his home essentially. So if you're interested in, you know, the kind of environments bradbury grew up in there are great books to read for that alone too yes
4: yes very much so you know he claims that he remembered being born did you know that oh neat Uh no (laughs) i don't know if it's true but he claimed that he (laughs) he remembered being born he remembered being in the crib he remembered all this stuff and even if it's not true i want to believe that it's true yeah Uh it's such a bradbury thing it's such a bradbury thing to think about this like infant you know coming out and it's already Bradbury you know what I mean it's like he, <laughs> he, he remembers this he knows he's connected to that moment it's phenomenal
3: that, that sounds accurate no
0: the earliest anecdote I, I read for Bradbury was his his recollections of the real life Mr. Electrico you know touching yes. him on the nose yes. with the
3: sword and saying live forever yeah
1: and yeah. oh my gosh and apparently tell him he was the resurrection of a friend from World War One. he was yes. yeah he was
4: claimed when they say this they do don't they do this in in something wicked too doesn't he say the same thing that he's the reincarnation of this best friend that died in his arms during World War I. What a thing to tell a kid at that age. Amazing. It yeah. must have exploded <laughs> his little brain.
0: <laughs> you were speaking a bit about infusing your own self into your work, so it's probably a good way to transition into your novella, The Excavator, which I wanted to bring up. We'll talk about your Kickstarter here momentarily. But... Oh, I'm happy to talk about The Excavator, yeah. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So this is an, an illustrated novella that's currently available from Neotext. And such a timely read in conjunction with something wicked on a few levels. Uh, one being very right up front. You both begin or are both tied into a quote from
4: Macbeth. Oh, that's so funny! I didn't even think about that. Wow.
0: Oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny going into this. I thought that was intentional, but it was not. It was not at all. Knowing now that you hadn't read um, something wicked in a while, so yeah. And but in both cases, being so intrinsically tied to the relationship between parents and their and children.
4: Yeah, yeah, it's um. I hadn't done any prose since I had a, a young adult fantasy novel called Imagine Alice was out in probably 2010 and I hadn't done any prose since then. And I got approached. Neotex, it's really interesting. They have a website, neotexcorp.com, and they're developing all this original fiction and nonfiction. And I like to do novellas and I like them to be illustrated. So my friend Vasilis Godzillis, a wonderful artist from Greece, did 10 beautiful paintings Fabulous. for this. Yeah. Really, really great. You know, it's all available on Amazon either as an ebook. book The ebook is only a dollar, just to say. <laughs> and then uh, in a physical book, which a lot of us still love, a nice physical book. And um, and it was just such a – I hold prose in very high esteem. Despite the fact that I've been a professional writer for 40-plus years, it's like when I'm sitting down to write a prose piece, it becomes – suddenly it's like the monolith in 2001.
2: You know, it's like, <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> Prose, <laughs> Charles Dickens, Ray Bradbury.
4: <laughs> oh, yeah. So it was both uh, terrifying and delightful to work on this. And uh, I'm, I'm really, really happy with the way it turned out. And, you know, kind of going what we're talking about with Bradbury, you know, every, everything that a writer writes, whether they realize it or not, whether it's about people on Mars or it's about, you know, growing up, you know, in your town where you grew up, it's all about you in some way, shape or form. And I only realized when this book, when I was done with the novella, looking at it after the fact. How profoundly autobiographical it is, not in a, not in a literal sense that you could chart and look at my life and go, but just there is so much of me and my concerns and my beliefs and all those things wrapped in these characters. But that's what you hope for in any piece of work. I found that writing Spider-Man, I like, could be finished and go, "What? well, what, 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 that's me. That's not Peter Parker. We fused into one being, you know. Can, can I just tell people what the premise of the story is? I was about okay. to say, yeah.
0: I, I guess we can cover like just kind of the basic premise of the first couple chapters. Yeah, you?
4: the basic premise, which is great because it's. A, I think I, very rarely do I come up with like, "What? Oh, what a cool premise!" You know, it's like this is a cool <laughs> premise. So it's like you could like you could go pitch this somewhere as a movie and just pitch the premise. You know, whereas usually for my stories, it's like I can't explain the story. I don't know how to begin. It. <laughs> so, uh, long story short, woman wakes up one morning. She's in bed. Sleeping next to her husband, she opens her eyes and there's a boy standing at the end of her bed. She's half asleep. So it's kind of like, am I dreaming this or is this real? And then suddenly she realized, wait a minute, there's a boy standing at the end of my bed. A boy I have never seen before in my life. What the hell is going on? How did this kid get into my house? And then the kid starts to climb into her bed, you know? So it's like, and to her, this is like a horror thing happening. This kid is suddenly in my bedroom. He's climbing into my bed. He climbs on top of her. She pushes him off. Knocks him to the floor, starts to cry. The husband wakes up. What's going on? And the kid goes, Daddy, why did mommy do that to me? And we realize that this is her son and she has absolutely no memory of his existence. Oh, wow. She remembers her husband. She remembers her daughter. She remembers everything about her life, but her son has been erased. They take her to the hospital. They get it. Did she have a stroke? What's happening? She seems fine. Maybe it's stress. Anyway, they get home and she gets a text message basically saying, uh, give us two hundred fifty thousand dollars for the return of the memories of your son. Oh my God! And if you don't, we're going to take your daughter next. And that's just the premise. And then it Holy goes off. Sh- into, it goes off into some very different, unex- I hope, unexpected places from there.
0: Absolutely, yeah. That's it. Covers about
1: the first two chapters.
4: It's the whole thing is really a story about parents and children, and about kind of the permeable layers between our psyches as well.
1: Being a
3: parent of a boy and a girl. That's terrifying to me. Oh my it
4: god! Is. And she can't feel it. She doesn't feel anything. She wants to yeah. feel something, but since she has no memory of this kid, she can't. She, you know, she's looking at old videos, and she just can't feel anything.
3: Oh my god! And that's a nightmare. Yes,
1: yes, it is. I have to say, as a non-parent, but somebody who works in cybersecurity. That's terrifying yep. <laughs> from a different angle. <laughs> the other element of it, yeah. the, the ransomware sort of angle. Right. Well, that, that's you know that's kind
4: of where the idea came from. I was working on another project that had to do with hackers and everything, and I thought, what about a mind hacker? What would happen if someone oh. did that? You know, and, and held your memories for ransom. You know, that's, that's where the that's oh. where the initial germ of the story came. Oh. That's
1: fascinating and utterly, utterly terrifying. Yes, Man, I can't wait to read it. Yes, good. I hope, and I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it.
4: Only a dollar. Only a dollar.
1: Yes. <laughs> oh no, I, I don't. I don't download things. I like to get the physical. Okay, so I'll, good. I'll... Well,
4: like I said, the, the physical book you can really—I think you can appreciate the illustrations more as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny
0: flipping through it just now. I had one of the books. I had, portions I had earmarked in the physical copy is where you actually make a reference to Doctor Fate appropriately enough <laughs> in the course of it. But yeah, uh, it's such an instantly engrossing opening, and then kind of similar to, to what you were talking about with something wicked, in terms of balancing a line. the The horrific elements of this are certainly you know, decidedly horrific, and and lean very much into abject terror and the supernatural. But but at the same time, similar to something wicked, it's buoyed by the sense of you know emotional earnestness and and a sense of hopefulness and you know sort of the brighter aspects of. of that can exist between a parent and a child.
4: Yeah, I'm not a fan of horror that just leaves you horrified at the end. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I have to. I have to. Uh, it's not my view of life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think we we have to we all have to wrestle with our demons. That's the nature of existence. There are always times in life when we wrestle with our demons. But I really believe that you come through that into a better place, and that there is hope, and that life life is not is not a living hell. Life is something sacred and beautiful. And I always want to end up in that place. And that, you know, that ties back to Bradbury, too. Why do I respond to his work? Because it speaks to what I believe.
3: Even in the face of terror, there's still good in the world. and We're all a part of it. Yeah, Yeah.
4: exactly. Exactly.
3: No, I, I love the novella. And
0: I guess that's actually a good way to transition into the upcoming project. You've got the Demultiverse, where you're launching four new books. And gosh, I guess, what do you think the best
4: one is to start with? Layla in the Lands of After? Well let, let me let me just back it up a little bit just so you can get the backstory on this. So you know, I, I've been going back and forth between Marvel and DC kind of stuff and creator own work almost through my whole career. From so that was back in the eighties. I always, because I need to be able to express myself as opposed to myself through these pre existing characters. And so I'm always looking for new venues for these books, uh, for these new ideas. And Kickstarter always fascinated me, but it also daunted me because seems like a lot of work, you know, (laughs) not the writing, but the dealing with all everything that has to go on around it to get the word out, you know. And and so I got together with a friend of mine. His name is David Baldy. He's a TV writer and a producer of of 20 years and also a comic book fan. And he said, well, let's let's work on this together. And he built this imprint, Spellbound Comics, around these four books. I pitched him four ideas thinking we're going to pick one and we're going to kickstart a four or five issue miniseries. He said, no, let's do all four. I love them all. So what we're doing is four first issues, essentially four pilots from four different series. And the fun of it is that anyone who buys all four of the books or buys the collected edition, which will have all four of them and a lot of other extras in it, gets to vote on which of these four will be the first to continue. Our hope is to continue them all. But we're going to, going to start with one. So you get to participate and you get to vote in this. Should I run through all four? Just uh, sure. Yeah, whichever one you want to start with. But yeah, I don't know if Layla and the Lands of After might be the. I'll start with Layla and the Lands of After because it's sort of fantasy. Uh, uh, not sort of fantasy;
2: it is flat out <laughs> fantasy.
4: Um, so, I'm doing it with Sean. Speaking of Doctor Fate, I'm doing it with Sean McManus. Sean and I did two years on Doctor Fate together uh, at DC years back, and oh yeah, one of my favorite favorite gigs ever, ever. Mine loved too. On that book, but... I got to say. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm a huge Doctor Fate guy. That was one of those cases where, and this happened in. It didn't happen so much today, but you could do it back in the eighties, where you worked on a pre-existing character and you were given so much freedom. It might as well have been a creator-owned book, because it became so personal, and I got to tell exactly the stories I wanted to tell in exactly the way I wanted to tell it. Nice. So Sean and I have been talking about this project for like twelve years, so that we're finally getting it out in the world is amazing. So it starts in nineteen ninety-five. Layla's is thirteen-year-old girl biking home from her friend's house one night after dinner. She's enveloped in a ball of light. She's carried up into the air, over the rainbow, through the looking glass, plopped down in this magical world, this Oz-like, perfect, beautiful, magical place with talking trees and singing rivers and all this stuff. And oh, this is amazing. Until she encounters her cat, who happened to have died like five years ago, and her grandfather, who's been dead for a while. And we realize that this is not Oz. This is the afterlife.
2: Oh, wow. And
4: that that light that engulfed her was the light of the car that ran her down. So Layla being 13 says, you know what? I'm only 13. I'm not ready to be dead. I refuse to be dead. And we're going to find a way out of here and get me back. And so it becomes the story of her moving through these multiple lands, because that's why it's called the lands of after, because my concept is the afterlife. we We all get the afterlife that we project. Whatever you think the afterlife will be, if you want it to be angels and harps, you'll get that. If you're full of Catholic guilt, Or Jewish guilt, and you think you're going to end up burning in hell, you'll get that. If you think heaven is being 10 years old again, playing stickball with your friends in the street, you'll get that, and more and more and more. So they have to journey through these lands on this quest to get Layla back before the window of opportunity closes. Nice. So that's the first one.
0: Yeah, and anyone who read your Doctor Fate run with Sean McManus knows exactly how terrific Sean McManus's art is. But yeah, the preview art that's available for that and all these titles, but this, yeah, this is so. Sean hilarious. is
4: one of those guys. He's been in the business for like thirty something years, or you know, probably thirty something years, and he just gets better and better yes. and better and better, and he's just he's amazing and a great guy too. All these guys, I'm really really lucky. They're all phenomenal artists, and the alternate cover. We have alternate covers for each one. This is by J.H. Williams III, who people know wow. maybe the most from Promethea with Alan Moore. Did an incredible cover. Just yeah. incredible. Second one, so we don't have to spend all day on this. Oh, no. <laughs> Second one is called Godsend, And this is the one I've probably been nursing the longest, probably 15, 16 years or more. I've been playing with this idea. And my one liner is Kirby Gods meets Philip K. Dick meets The Matrix. Because I like stories that sort of Play with our concept of personal identity and our concepts of what is so who we who we think we are versus who we really are, what we project reality to be versus what it really is. So the main character here is a, is a middle-aged junior high school teacher named Eric Small, overweight, depressed, had a terrible childhood, got like one friend, and they're both into science fiction and fantasy, got a crush on this other teacher at school, can't even really talk to her. Not, not a good life that he's living. Well, into this world appears this celestial being that the media dubs Godsend. Sort of, you know, kind of like, like a Kirby god character, almost like a Hindu god, a blue-skinned god descending. Appears out of nowhere. We think he's here for good, but maybe we don't really know. He could be here, you know, to do terrible things. We don't know, but Eric becomes obsessed with Godsend in the same way that Richard Dreyfuss in Close Encounters of the Third Kind became obsessed with UFOs. You know? hmm. It's all over his walls. He can't stop watching the TV. He's up half the night. And long story short, one day into Eric's living room appears this seven foot tall turtle being with a man's head who says to him, get on my back. What? Get on my back. <laughs> and he's terrified. So he does what the turtle says. He gets on his back and the turtle flies out of his apartment. And this initiates a series of events that basically transforms Eric's view of who and what he is and who and what reality is. And it takes off from him.
3: That's fun. Oh.
0: And that's with Matthew Dow Smith. Uh, doing... Matthew Dow Smith. Yeah. Uh,
4: an old buddy. My, I, I I said I've been nursing this for years, but I started writing the script in the first year of the pandemic. Matt and I think were thinking at first that we would just um, put it out online for free, do six page chapters and do it that way. So I wrote about, I don't know, 35 or 40 pages of script. But then this came along. and It was like, oh, let's do it this way. So I, I took that script and I turned it into a first issue script. And Matt, Matt's great because... Matt has a very singular style. Mm. You can't really mix him up with anyone else. I I liken it to Ditko, not in that it looks like Ditko, but like, you know how Steve Ditko, you can't mix up Ditko with anybody else. Right. You can't really even imitate Ditko. It just Ditko is what Ditko is. And Matt has a very singular style like that. And he's also really, really great with capturing the character's humanity and emotions and body language in a totally different way. Kevin Maguire is brilliant at that too. And it's sort of similar to Kevin, but in a totally different way. So he really, really brings these characters alive, because when you're dealing with a bigger cosmic concept, and same thing with Layla, they have to, these things have to be grounded in real people that you believe in and you feel with and you care about, and that is so good at that. So that's Godsend. that's two, right? That's two. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> the third one is called "Any Man." This one is, is probably the closest to a traditional uh, superhero story, at least on the surface. Uh, Although this is also a big story because it takes place over the course of like 50 years. It starts in 1969, we're in Times Square and uh, a portal opens and out comes this costume being who announces to the world that he's traveled for millions of years in the past from this idyllic Eden-like civilization that existed in prehistory. But unfortunately their hubris got the better of them and their whole civilization came collapsing down. He has now come to 1969, our crisis point, to save us from the same fate. So over the course of the next 50 years, he becomes the global hero, not not just for the one city, not just for the United States, for the whole world. Everyone looks up to him. Everyone takes inspiration from him. He's done amazing things. The only problem is this entire story of his origin is a complete fabrication. It's a lie. So who is he? What's he doing here? Who created him? Where did he come from? And that's just one twist. And then there's a twist beneath that twist and another twist beneath that twist in there as well.
3: (laughs) Oh, that's nice. And the
4: artist by David Baldeon, David and I recently did the Ben Riley Spider-Man series from Marvel, which the collected edition just came out in September. Oh, perfect. And David is, is an amazing, amazing artist. Brilliant with big action, brilliant with intimate character moments. And I think it's, All these guys, I'm looking at this stuff and it's like, oh, this is your best work. Oh, this is your best work. This
2: is your best. Honestly, (laughs) yeah,
4: of the preview pages, they're all they're just they're just doing amazing, amazing things. So that's any man, and the last one is called Wisdom, and it's the first Western I've ever done, but it's a supernatural Western, so it fits with our October (laughs) tone here. And you know, ideas often come to me as mind movies, and this is also about twelve years ago. I was lying in bed one morning, and my eyes are closed, and I'm looking at. Oh, look, a movie in my head. Okay, let's watch it, you know? Oh, look, he's on a horse. Oh, it's a Western. Oh, let's see, who, this, who is this? Oh, it's a supernatural Western. And then you kind of run, run into my office and start writing it all up. And by the time I was done, I must have had 50 pages of notes, you know, for this thing that I, again, have been developing uh, for years. And it really taps into uh, my childhood love of Westerns because I was telling somebody uh, just recently, when I was a kid, I'm older than you guys, apparently. <laughs> and... and Like I I looked it up recently. I looked up the TV schedule from when I was like six or seven. So there are only three networks, right? And prime time is only three hours a night. 27 shows are Westerns. Jeez. Oh, my God. 27 (laughs) shows. You know what I mean? I I put on Twitter last week uh, or the week before a picture of me like I'm four years old, complete cowboy outfit, cowboy hat, Mm -hmm. riding my hobby horse. Across the prairie, you know? It was like, it was such a huge part of my childhood. Everyone was into Westerns. Everyone was into cowboys. And then you gr- I grew up and forgot about it, but this story has reignited my passion for the Western. And the one-liner is it's sort of Deadwood meets Lord of the Rings. Mm, so it's, right. on the one hand, it's a gritty Western, but it's also, it's about this, uh, our main character is Gabriel Wisdom. And uh, the first issue really gets into his entire backstory where you see how he journeys from being this pampered son of a wealthy father to a a broken man who's lost his wife and his child gets transformed then into a fierce gunslinger and ultimately is tasked with becoming a sorcerer to protect the world against this great evil that's coming and his personal quest it's sort of like john ford's the searchers in a way too because he's got a personal quest to get his wife and daughter back first he thinks they're dead but it turns out they've been taken by this dark force so Part of him is trying to redeem and save his wife and daughter who have been corrupted by this force. While on a broader scale, he's trying to be out there saving the world. So it's in, in a little bit, it's kind of, you know, Dr. Fate on a horse I mean, on some level, <laughs> Nice. That's <you know? laughs> nice. pretty good to me. And the art is by Tom Mandrake. If you know Tom's art. Oh, yeah. Tom, like nobody does supernatural like Tom does. And mm. also nobody does Westerns like Tom does. So, and and again, I'm going to keep saying it: some of the best work I've ever seen from him. It's just... Fabulous. Gorgeous, gorgeous.
0: Colors by Jan Dersema. By Jan
4: Dersema, his wife, who is also an incredible artist in her own uh, in her own right. Absolutely. And I should mention on Godsend, Matt Smith is writing, not writing, I'm writing, excuse me, <laughs> penciling, <laughs> penciling, inking, coloring, and lettering the whole thing. Nice. On the other two books are being colored by a wonderful colorist named Arthur Hesley, and three of the books are being lettered by Taylor Esposito, who you know from DC and many other companies, incredibly
0: he's player. fantastic we were just talking about him on our moon night episode we had alex segura as our guest on that who just wrote secret identity and taylor
4: esposito did the letters for that yeah i read secret yeah. identity and really really enjoyed that yeah oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's terrific and all, i should mention also since we talked about justice league kevin McGuire is doing the alternate cover for any man oh nice Ooh, okay and yeah 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 and uh dustin yen is doing the alternate cover for for which one hold it for oh for wisdom for wisdom okay and then we have a mystery artist who's going to be doing the alternate cover for Godsend, and Liam Sharp, yes, the amazing Liam Sharp, is doing the cover for the collected edition. Wow, that is an all-star cast there. It really is. we I'm I'm so grateful to all these guys. You know that that they're all here and part of this is really. Uh, exciting you know Liam and I go back years we worked on Man Thing at Marvel in the yes. 90s, and one of my favorite collaborations
0: ever yeah it's part of the Strange Tales label that was running yeah and it's right. timely with Man Thing now being in the Twitter with the, the cameo and the Werewolf by Night Disney Plus special oh god I love that! anyone who hasn't read that Man Thing series please go track
1: it down it is
4: phenomenal did you guys enjoy that that Werewolf by Night
1: I thought it was fun. I, I haven't watched it yet. Been waiting to... My wife is a huge werewolf fan and we haven't had time to sit down and watch it It was
4: yet. really fun. It was just yeah. like pure 1940s Universal Monster movie black and white fun, you know? Yeah.
1: I, I can't wait. <laughs> Speaking of uh, movie stuff, you tweeted the other day
4: you saw Black Adam and you were credited in it. Oh, I didn't see... I haven't seen the movie. All Someone on Twitter put the... They, they must have been in a, in a preview and they took a, a shot of the screen with all the thanks in it,
1: yeah. Mm. Okay, Did had you figured out why you were thanked yet, or?
4: I can't, you know, someone said, oh, it's because you wrote Dr. Fate, but, you know, it's not, you don't get thanked just because you wrote Dr. Fate once. It has to be some element of something that we have done right. that is being used yeah. in the movie. And everything I've read about the movie, I can't figure it out, you know? <laughs> so I'll have to wait till I see it and then I'll, then I'll figure out what it's there for. Same thing happened with the Joker movie. Keith and I got thanked in that, and this ties into Dr. Fate, too. We couldn't figure it out, and I thought it was for this Batman-Joker story that I'd done. It turned out they used a character of ours from our original Dr. Fate miniseries who was running Arkham Asylum, and he's running Arkham Asylum in the movie.
2: Huh?
4: Oh! So you never know what they're going to pull out. It's, it's, it's what's interesting about the time we're in right now. It's like you never know what obscure character is going to end up on some TV show or in some movie. I mean, they had basically had my Frogman character on She-Hulk two weeks ago. You know, it was like, what? I didn't ever expect to see him.
0: Speaking of Marvel work, you've got uh, The Lost Hunt coming out uh, in November
4: as well, right? Right, right. Very shortly. And uh, I'll do the the quick one on this one, too. I don't want to be sitting here flogging the whole time. Well, we talked about Ray a long time, so I can flog for a (laughs) minute. Flog away. This takes place in the same time frame as the Ben Reilly series, which is... You know, when you were reading comics, it was the 90s. But now it's like, I imagine it's like five years ago. So Peter and Mary Jane are living in Portland. They're married. She's pregnant, very pregnant. And Peter, in this period, based on, on the one series that was done about them in that time, he's lost all his powers. So we have a powerless Peter Parker. We have someone from Craven's past, Gregor, who was kind of Craven's right-hand man, who has been planning for some time to finally get his revenge on this guy, for what happened to Craven and what happened to Craven's son, Vladimir. And so we have a powerless Peter Parker being hunted by Gregor, and then we introduce another character who kind of fills in the gap uh, between Craven, Gregor, and Craven's past. Because I was always curious about how did this guy who started out, he was the son of, of Russian aristocrats, they get chased out of Russia during the revolution, they come to the United States, they're broke. The father is a broken, drunk man. The mother dies in an institution and kills herself. How did this guy end up being the guy running around Africa, you know, hunting? Mm. And so I've had this character in the back of my head for some time who I introduced in this series who fills in the gap on Craven's backstory. And it's very, very important to our current story as well. It's kind of pretty, again, fits with our theme. It's more of a horror story than a superhero story. Mm. And I'm very excited about it. Really excited about it. And that'll be out the beginning of November, I think. I'm done plugging. Well, we like scary stuff here at the Scary Stuff Pod. I got <laughs> to say.
0: About say, is there anything else you have coming up, or
4: nothing that I can? T- I'm trying to think that I can talk. about. Wasn't that enough? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs>
4: I am working on another novella now, but I can't talk about it now it's for NeoText. I'm doing another novella. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad to hear you're keeping the prose going. That's fabulous. I was hoping. Yeah, that- I am. I am. Yeah, excellent. So that's 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 all the plugs. That's all the plugs. So do we want to say some more about Ray before we finish up, or?
1: I did have one thing. It's not necessarily about Ray, but it was something I was curious about. In in kind of prepping for this, uh, I read a blog that you wrote where you referenced that uh, part of your your turn into full-time comic writing was the response to a review you wrote for Go Uh. to Heaven by Grateful Dead. (laughs) And I I was kind of curious if, in retrospect, you look back at the album any more favorably. Because I I have to say, I'm not a big dead guy, but I listened to the album today, and I thought you were pretty dead on back then. It was kind of a meandering bore of an album. But, uh.
4: <laughs> but I hate that I even said that. You know, the story is, you know, well, I was, you know, I played in bands and obviously I was a writer, too. So it was, it was an easy transition into rock and roll journalism. And I wrote for a bunch of, you know, different papers, not, not like major papers, but there were plenty of music papers out there. And uh, then I got some gigs writing for Rolling Stone. And, you know, when you're in the privacy of your own home and you're being an opinionated asshole, it's one thing.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Jake wouldn't know anything about that.
4: (laughs) Hey, sometimes you start a
1: podcast and do it. So, you know,
4: (laughs) you know, and I am very opinionated, although I've learned over the years to temper that because I, you know, I was just tweeting about this the other day. Just because I don't like something doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And doesn't mean that it ha- doesn't have great meaning to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, it's just, but I was younger then. It was like I'm going to be an opinionated asshole, and they're going to pay me, you know. And I don't think I was that horrible in that review. But
1: no, not I, at all. I,
4: I wrote this review of this Grateful Dead album, and honestly, looking back, it was my own immaturity because that review had more to do with my feelings about the Dead culture. You know what I mean? I had friends yeah. that were Deadheads, and and so it was snarky, and you know, there was no reason for it to be snarky. So what happened was. You know, the review comes out in Rolling Stone. Forget this is Rolling Stone. This is like a major magazine. Um, this is not me in my living room or me writing for a little paper over here. This is Rolling Stone. So they sent me this stack of letters. And I opened it up. It's all these dead fans who read this review. <gasps> oh no. And no, and here's the difference, I guess, between internet culture now and what this was then. They weren't so much angry as they were just kind of heartbroken. Oh You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh. And it was like How could he write that? It was the feeling that I walked away from it. You know, it's like, it was as if I'd written something in Rolling Stone about your mother. Oh, no. Why did you say that about mom? Because I understand that. Because the things that I'm passionate about, you know, if I see something and they're negative about it, it's like, no, I love that. Don't you understand? You know, I'm I'm exactly the same way. So I read through that stuff and it really, really impacted me really deeply. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to be this guy. I don't want to be the guy that's criticizing anyone else. And even, I have to say, even in that review, I tried to say, I always try, even if I didn't like an album or a concert, I tried to say something nice. And I did say something nice in there too. But, you know, it still was too snarky.
1: Well, it's, it's not often the keyboardist gets that much credit, so I'll, I appreciate it. <laughs>
2: right, that. exactly.
1: And I think
4: that pissed people off even more, because like, we're talking about him and not Jerry or Bob Weir. What's going on here? But know? they
1: were the two best songs on the album, so I felt like that was
4: justified. At well, least. So it was a little accurate. That's good to know. But anyway, <laughs> from that moment, I said, you know what? I don't, I don't want to be that guy. I'd rather be the guy being criticized. And I'm a creator, and I want to create and let other people judge my work. I don't want to be sitting in judgment of other people's work. And I never wrote another review after that. All right, fair. Mm. That was the end of it. Now, I st- this does not mean I don't have great respect for like intelligent, compassionate critics. I find, you know, critics that I like and I can trust, so if you read if they feel the certain way about a movie, I might feel the same way. So it's not that I'm anti criticism, but it really didn't work for me. It really didn't mm. work for me. I you know, I just let me be the guy that's being criticized. And and I still remember one of the first reviews I ever got, it was in Comics buyer's guide, or something, they were going through all the Marvel stuff, and they thought I just started. I was writing Conan, and their one liner was uh, JMD Mateus just types. Oh, uh,
2: oh. Oh. <laughs> and, well, that
4: really evened the scales, didn't it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: I can move on now, you know? You know, the truth is, it's all opinion. We all have opinion, and it's fun to have opinion. It's okay not to like something, but as long as we realize it, just because it's our opinion, it doesn't mean it's the truth. It's just our opinion. And someone else, you know, I I could look at certain things and go, it doesn't resonate with me. I don't like it, but I can see the skill that went into making it and the passion that went into making it. Or if it's a movie the acting was great, the writing's really good. I hate the story, but you know what I mean? But you can appreciate the thing. And And I think that maybe just comes with getting older. Because you know, in my twenties, it was just my opinions were like sacrosanct. You know, like,
1: that's, <laughs> well, that's part of the fun of a podcast like ours is that I'll have an opinion on something, and Nick will tell me that he knows where I live and vice <laughs> <first time>. versa.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, so you balance each other out,
1: yeah. yeah, exactly. And Eric edits us out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <there too> <laughs> I sand
3: the edges off of those opinions. (laughs) It's like Jake's job is to complain. Mine is to glorify. And Eric's is like, no, no, here's why you're both wrong and why things are the way they are.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's excellent. That's really excellent.
3: No, but I, I appreciate you coming by
4: Oh, this is fun to share your opinions on Ray Bradbury with us. And I, you know, I, I, I never get to talk about Ray with people and I love Ray. You know, it's like it's, it's even to call I call him Ray because it feels that intimate. You know, when you read his stuff. Yeah. The people that we love, the artists that we love, it becomes a very intimate thing. You know, they, in a way they become our friends because, you know, you read a book. It's the, what's more intimate than reading a book. Well, a couple of things, but, you know, but it's pretty intimate. It's just you and a book and your mind, you know, and and with an author that you love, it just becomes something really magical and deep. And that's how I feel about Bradbury.
3: Well, have to get you back someday for The Illustrated Man then.
4: OK, yeah, I'd love, you know, I'd love to reread any of this stuff and, and talk about it. Yeah.
3: Yeah, uh, either that, or I know you're a big
0: fan of Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. <laughs> so whenever we get to it, I and am. we could talk about Greenberg
4: the Vampire in conjunction okay. with it. Perfect. <laughs> there we go. Greatest Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Greatest horror comedy ever made for my
1: I <laughs> It. It would be out there. That was one of the ones that, you know, my brother and I used to watch that every Saturday as a kid that would come on. and
4: Yeah, when I was a kid, it was like always on. It yeah. was always on, you know. It was cool. What a great movie. Like I,
1: I never loved horror as a kid, but I could, I could deal with it when Bud and Lou were, were there uh, to run some interference for that's me. That's right. You
4: know? And it, But it's also genuinely scary, too, which is yeah. what's so great about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, we can do this all day and I can't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: so, yeah we're very excited for everything you've got coming out. We're going to tweet links to all of it. Um, I will put one thing on your behalf real quick. You've been doing a lot of other interviews in conjunction with the Kickstarter, but I do want to call out, you did a wonderful podcast or uh, an episode of a podcast called Gray Malkin Lane, and where you spoke with them about your work on the new Defenders and the and your Iceman Mini and whatnot. And it was an absolutely fabulous interview. Oh, thank you. So yeah, for anyone who hasn't checked that out, the name of the podcast is Gray Malkin Lane. I love that discussion. So please go check that out. And yeah, just thank you so much for your time. Really can't thank you enough. Thank you. My
4: pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Thanks.
0: Once again, big thanks to special guest JM DeMateus. And now that he's gone, we can gush. Oh my God! (laughs) 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 Uh, It it is not hyperbole. Uh, We we talked about this a bit in the segment talking with, but it, it is seriously not hyperbole to mention what a formative influence jm dematteis's work is for
1: both jake and i for certain impossible to overstate how much of my love of comics and as i mentioned was built and cemented in part by jm dematteis so having him on and i i gotta tell you i i came out of the recording and i went upstairs and jen asked how that went and i said well i managed to not just make a high-pitched squealing noise for 45 minutes so i figured it was a complete success Sometimes it's good to meet your heroes. <laughs> we, yeah,
0: we've had the pleasure of meeting him briefly at Baltimore Comic-Con in the past, but yeah, that was such a lovely conversation. It was so much fun.
1: But to follow up on what we talked about there, I mean obviously go check out his work. I know how you could listen to that pitch and not immediately go back that Kickstarter. I
3: know, right? It sounded amazing. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So this episode is going to be coming out on Halloween and the Kickstarter is going to be ending the morning of November the 10th. So if you listen to this episode, Go head over to the Kickstarter, back it for the Demultiverse. Uh, probably the shortest way of reading the link for it is just to say go to kickstarter.com slash profile slash spellboundcomics. Or you can just go to spellboundcomics.com and they have landing pages there for all the books as well. and They have a store page set up. But yeah, absolutely go back that. Seriously, all four of those books look terrific. The art teams that are working on them alongside Jim DeMatteis are fantastic. All the concepts sound really interesting. And
1: you know the writing's
0: going to be great. So, yeah, we, we backed it instantly. And I honestly can't wait to check out all of those books. And if you're curious about them, yeah, just head over to the Kickstarter. There's preview art for all of them. Uh, there's a lot of the variant covers that were mentioned or are listed on there. So, yeah, go check it out. And also, like we mentioned, go check out his novella, The Excavator, from Neo Text. Like was mentioned, in the conversation. If you're into ebooks, it's like a dollar. Yeah, but buy it's, that shit in print. Come on, man. I did. Yeah, I'm. I'm <sighs> I, I am waving it right now. So, yeah, please, please, please check out his work. Yeah. So that was said, just kind of a roundabout discussion of of Bradbury as a whole and something wicked this way comes. But I, I'm glad we did it because this is a particularly interesting movie to discuss in terms of being an adaptation, and I think. Given the nature of the source material, I think it's helpful to talk about the source material, but for this particular case, because among other things, Bradbury's prose is so unique and in terms of choices that are made in translating that and whatnot. So I'm glad we were able to, to do that just a little bit before you know, now we are going to start segueing into discussing the movie itself.
1: You, you do get bits and pieces of the prose in the film, and I yes. thought that was nice, even if they're a little... Uh, hodgepodge and kind of rearranged on occasion but you you get at least some of that flavor if nothing else and that's important i i had never seen the film like even as a kid and you know even knowing it was disney we're like i don't know about this shit and uh we had a book and i i haven't had a chance to talk to my brother about this but i remember we had a book that had pictures from all different movies in it and either that or it was a not a Fangoria, but like a Starlog or something.
0: Definitely there was a Starlog about this because mm-hmm. I read the Starlog piece. Yeah,
1: Must have had pictures from it because I remember, A, I remember being scared of the, the Dust Witch. And then there's a scene in the movie that I had forgotten existed when I watched it this time, but I knew of as a kid because I remember seeing the stills of it that was definitively made me not want to watch this. And if I had remembered it was in the movie, You wouldn't have suggested would not it. have pushed for this for <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> I did not need it in my life. In fact, that scene came up while I was eating dinner last night as I was Ooh. watching this again. But which scene, Jake? <laughs> the scene. The worst scene. What scene? The scene where the kids are noticeably older than the rest of the film. Oh, you mean when they're chasing the train? No, not no. that scene. Oh,
3: oh okay. you mean the
2: mirror
1: maze where they're also notably Oh, older. Right, right, right. As I, I am scared of mirrors at night, as rightly anybody should be. No, I'm talking about the scene that replaced the Dust Witch coming after them in the balloon, which would have been cool to see. No, instead we get oh. piles and piles of fucking tarantulas. <laughs> You're
3: talking about the 200 live tarantulas they used for this, plus some fake
1: ones, but the 200 live tarantulas. Okay. I, you know, I looked up a bit of trivia <laughs> on that, and I, I, I think it was the, the, how many of them there were, and then I just, my brain seized for like 45 minutes yeah it was 200 thinking about it yeah (laughs) (laughs) i did not like that scene and i knew of it as a kid and it probably because of the star log of this book that we had that had movie stills on it and i'm sure that's why i avoided all this other than you know so being kind of a wuss as i've said a thousand times on this podcast but i didn't yeah i didn't enjoy that shit Mm -mm, nope did not need that that was no good especially with the bed Sheet? come yeah. on, man! Oh, and the bed <laughs> sheets moving right next to him. Yeah, that was good. His fucking feet are on. Un- no. Yeah. No, that was yeah. not good. That was-,
2: that was good. I
1: understand why neither of these kids ever acted again, man. <laughs> That's not entirely <laughs> true. It's close to true.
3: It's close to they true. They
1: both had like three credits. Yeah, they didn't I do much too. more it was after like, it. What's acting? Acting is being covered in tarantulas. I think <laughs> I'm going to become a fucking accountant. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> See, the
3: problem is, is that there were, there were two problems here. One was there were 200
1: problems
3: (laughs) (laughs) their effects budget and capabilities were limited so they wanted to do something instead with like a large like fake hand and whatnot. but it just looked too hokey and they weren't going to do it not to mention like Disney did a screening of it and it did poorly which is why they ended up having to bring in a whole secondary like unit director in to come do the extra scenes a year later those kids man oh my god they're like those two scenes in the mirror maze and the tarantulas. They were like decidedly older. Like it
1: was so obvious. They probably had to use ADR because, you know, the one talking. Hello, everybody.
0: You know, <laughs> uh, they decidedly did a lot of ADR in this movie,
1: which we'll probably talk about. And I'm sure we'll talk about the reshoots as well. Well, but see, it's in the reshoots, yeah, they took out the hand because it was too hokey and put in 200 fucking tarantulas. And the movie still tanked. And I feel like there's a lesson to be learned. <laughs> <laughs> But it's actually kind of a
3: shame, because per Bradbury, a lot of the changes just sort of destroyed his original intentions. He was in charge of the changes. Was he? To hear him tell it, yes. Oh, man.
0: We'll get into that. Well, to an extent, we'll get into that. Before we get into to too much of the movie itself, so right at the top, do we want to do the production rundown? I could do that. All right.
3: So as we've discussed, this is Something Wicked This Way Comes. Uh, released in 1983. It was directed by Jack Clayton. Mm -hmm. who you may have heard us talk about as he's also directed The Innocents, The Great Gatsby, and The Room at the Top. It was written by the one, the only, the great, the legend, Ray Bradbury, who you may have seen other type of uh, films and endeavors with, such as Fahrenheit 451, The Illustrated Man, The Martian Chronicles, all of the Ray Bradbury theater from HBO Productions, and several Twilight Zones and several Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The man is phenomenal love to write and some would say like uh, the godfather of sci-fi you should read his <laughs> stuff <laughs> it's good and real quick just to talk about what jake had said earlier about the prose being in the movie he's absolutely right and i think it's crucial because bradbury has a voice and has a style and you needed to have that in the movie to feel like it was him telling the story and it really works
2: hmm. the, the first
1: half i think does an okay job of that yes We'll,
0: well we'll get into it
1: uh the eric's got some thoughts i do i, I can't
0: wait I, I do want to call out two things with ray bradbury in terms of his screenwriting work one is uh, i wanted to mention that he worked on the screenplay for john Huston's adaptation of movie dick he did do that which i mentioned because that i believe is where he met jack clayton because jack clayton worked as an assistant and as a producer on A lot of John Huston's projects, which we talked a little bit about back in our Innocence episode. So I believe that's where they met and formed a bit of a friendship. And I also wanted to mention that Ray Bradbury also did the screenplay for the movie version of The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit, which he said was one of his favorite adaptations. And someone else we've covered on the pod. It was done by Stuart Gordon. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an interview that Ray Bradbury did with The Onion in 1999 where he talks about it and talks about uh how wonderful ice cream suit was a great example of you can do a great movie without a lot of profanity <laughs> and started to talk about how Saturday night fever's use of the phrase fuckhead ruined movies for him basically <laughs> it's it's a really fun interview he does with Joshua Klein back from 1999 but yeah, he apparently was very much a fan of Stuart Gordon's adaptation of Wonderful Ice Cream Suit, which they had done as a play, I think, years before the Guess movie.
1: why it's, it's Mr. Dark and not Mr. Fuck in this, huh? <laughs> First draft was Mr. Fuck, yeah. And <laughs> 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 Disney, so...
0: Yeah, I don't know about that. Might want to turn that down a bit. Uh, one other writing note, real quick, just to mention because he doesn't get credit for it, but one of the points of contention on the movie that Ray Bradbury had was rewrites were done on it by John Mortimer. And John Mortimer worked on... I'll expect he worked on The Innocence with Jack Clayton. I think he did rewrites on the Truman Capote script for that. He worked on The Running Man, not the Schwarzenegger one, the Carol Reed one. He worked on Tea with Mussolini, the Franco Zeffirelli movie, and a lot of television. So just want to mention that that was one of the sticking points for Ray Bradbury when the movie got rolling were these rewrites that were done that he didn't particularly care for.
3: This movie had two editors. The first was Barry Mark Gordon, who had worked on Victory. When time ran out and gotcha. (laughs) Oh, all the Sixers
0: pain has been washed away. Jake's back and talking to Jam Demateus
3: mode. Look at that smile. (laughs) I fixed it.
1: It's gotcha, man. I love gotcha. And you should,
3: too. (laughs) I'm sure I will when I see it. (laughs) It's shaking
0: Jake by the lapels after the Sixers lose. (laughs) No tears, Jake. That's how the Celtics win! You have to watch Gotcha!
1: (laughs) 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 To be fair, I checked scores since we uh, started recording this, and the Celtics did win, so, you know, fuck everything. I guess I wasn't happy enough.
3: The second editor was Argyle Nelson Jr., who also worked on Terror in the Skies, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and Sextet. Cinematography by Stephen H. Burham, who also worked on Raising Cain. Mm-hmm. Body Double, mm-hmm. The Entity, Death Valley, The Bride, and Scream Bloody ah, Murder. I was hoping you mentioned The Bride. Yeah, and Scream Bloody Murder. Yeah. Nice. His, uh, exploitation days. <laughs> and The Shadow.
0: He worked with, on Russell Mulcahy. He's The Shadow. But yeah, I really want to do The Bride on this pod at some point. It looked trippy. Yeah, did a lot of De Palma. From Body Double to Mission to Mars. I'm not sure if there were any... In between that he didn't do, because, yeah, Untouchables, mm-hmm. Casualties of War, Snake Eyes, War of the Roses, I think he did all of them. Yep. So, yeah, the, the fact that he was Brian De Palma's DP for that amount of time speaks to his abilities, because you know
3: how meticulous De Palma is with his shot construction. Music by James Horner, who also worked on Titanic, Avatar, An American Tale, Willow, Aliens, Crawl, Woofin, and Deadly Blessing. All right, so let- Oh, you stop- Short. Where? Oh, <laughs> you first, Eric, then me.
0: You were a couple years away from because a little bit before that was Battle Beyond the Stars, but before that, Humanoids from the Deep. Ah, Humanoids he, from he the got Deep. got to start with Corman, yeah. And around this, so I only noted the ones he did kind of leading up to because I mean, obviously, he's done a shit ton of stuff after this, and the year before this was Ratha Khan. His score for curl for me was oh yeah massive growing up that was a big one for me same for his score for willow and you can essentially hear his score for aliens in here because the cue from the sequence that jake doesn't like to think about is very much the foundation for the aliens attack music sting mm-hmm. in 1986 aliens i uh, also worth noting because james horner was brought on to replace the original composer uh, who was Georges delarue who worked on our mother's house day of the jackal day of the dolphin silkwood uh, platoon steel magnolias and joe versus the volcano so he was working for a joe versus volcano time. yeah he had a wide career his score was tossed out of out. all those that's the one that jumps out
1: that's like me getting excited about gotcha <laughs> <laughs>
0: hey at least we all have something to be happy about. <laughs> but it's interesting because so his score was thrown out late in the game after a, that initial screening that apparently went poorly because it was supposedly too dark and again, we'll talk about the tone stuff later. Remind me, I want to talk about some of the original promotional material in, in conjunction with it being too dark. But I will say, if you haven't heard the Georges Delarue Rue score, it is currently available. It might be on CD or something like that, but it is on YouTube. I didn't listen to the individual tracks, but there's a symphony version of it that runs about 40 minutes that I listened to. So you can get kind of a feel for it that way. Also worth noting, too, with James Horner coming into pension on this, James Horner would later become, in a lot of cases, kind of the go-to pinch hitter composer for a lot of movies because he famously came in to replace Gabriel Yared on the score for Troy, and I think he did that score in a week for that movie. So, yeah, Horner has an interesting history with being kind of the last minute, you know, come in and and redo the entire score, especially on movies where you could argue that the original score fit the intent of the movie way better, which I would argue (laughs) is the case with Troy.
1: You know, I actually did listen to the original score last night did you yeah i i was curious because i i thought that horner's score for this film felt jaunty it did and it didn't feel it felt very disney rather than it felt you know bradbury but the original score i really quite liked it was a bit more somber but i think it was a bit more fitting yeah
0: yeah yeah i mean it's hard to tell because you're listening to it in isolation and it was also done to a different cut Right. So there, there's only so much you can infer. But but listening to it in a bubble, in isolation, I, I like it quite a bit. And it, the funny thing is, percentage-wise, it's obviously generally a darker score. It's a darker movie! But the funny thing is, the main sort of nostalgia theme he has, which is this flute melody that comes in, which I assume is the theme for the kids, which is then done on a harmonica in the final sequence, but that theme, I think, is way better than any of the themes in the finished like like that. Even the one quote unquote jaunty bit that's noticeable in that score is better than all the jaunty bits in the James Horner ones. I, I don't begrudge James Horner's score for this film because he did the job he was hired to do, which was you know come in and, and bounce it up and make it feel like a more like a Disney movie. And I think within those limitations, his score is okay. But it, even now, with all the reshoots and stuff, his score still feels very incongruous with the actual material. But we'll probably get into that more talking about the movie.
1: And I'll, I'll say I actually listen to them both because I listen to the original and then, you know, at least the, the soundtrack version, you know, the, the individual cuts is also on YouTube for the James Horner score. And I listen to them both and. Well, just throwing this out there, they both make perfectly fine soundtracks for a Nets Toronto Raptors game. <laughs> Which is what I was watching While I was listening to them And yeah I I just I like the original more because the original felt more like the book Now whether it would have worked Over the film that we got who knows But it felt more like the book Than the the James Horner one Now to double back a little bit on the James Horner You Nick mentioned that he Did the score For American Tale. Yes Now if you remember on The Innocents When we did that, the community connection was this. James Horner did the music for Something Wicked This Way Comes, directed by Jack Clayton. He also wrote Somewhere Out There for An American Tale, which Troy and Abed sing to their rat in the first season episode, where it uses the Somewhere Out There as sort of the the emotional centerpiece of the episode. That was our community connection for The Innocents, was coming through this. So you're reusing it? No. Ah! good. good.
2: But I really (laughs) did,
1: I thought about it, it's like, if I just reuse this, that might get Nick a little bit extra annoyed as to the, the community connections because not only is it tangential, but it's reusing it.
3: I would, I would be doubly upset because you're reusing it, which is cheating, but also because it would have been better here than it would have been in the other film. <laughs>
2: <So>. <laughs>
1: yeah, and it took me a while to come up with this one for yeah. The innocence, so I got to keep it with The innocence because that one was a, that was a fucking challenge. Interestingly, though, what I'd spent most of the time trying to find a connection on The Innocents uh, was through Richard Erdman, who plays Leonard, the old student on Community. And I, ne- I I found, like, you know, he had appeared on a couple of the variety shows that other people in that had appeared on, and that was even, like, that was just too loose for me. I'm like, yeah, this show ran 20 seasons. In season one, he was on it. In season 18, they were on it. That doesn't feel right. <laughs> but for this movie, I did find the connection, because Richard Erdman was in Tora, Tora, Torah. He played ah. Colonel Edward F. French. And also in Tora, Tora, Torah is... Jason Robards, who of yeah. course stars in this. So, yeah, they were both together in Tora Toro Toro, which is a really fun war movie if you've never seen it. So that's our community connections. Richard Erdman via Tora Toro Toro Jason Robards. And, just for shits and giggles, also on American Tale with James Horner. <laughs> and yeah, the, again, I, I honestly can say this is the first time on our uh, podcast where I have listened to the scores for the film.
4: So,
1: so I did
0: my homework, damn it! I'm glad you like the original one too. That's fun. That's
1: yeah, weird. and I'm not kidding about it. Making a pretty good soundtrack for a Nets game, especially if you're hoping the Nets lose and they didn't. So it's you know kind of you get dark that somber ass <laughs> trombone
0: theme that you know, I assume is associated wah, with wah. Uh,
1: with dark. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> wah, 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 it did. Wah. It did link up a couple of times and really, you know, the Nets hit a three and you
3: know,
2: wah,
1: it's like fuck. This was produced by Walt Disney
3: Productions, the last produced by Walt Disney Productions before they became Walt Disney Pictures who have also produced such gems as gremlins the birds
1: and the watcher in the woods did you catch the bit about the credits on the dvd version or the, maybe it was the vhs version yeah they cut off the disney logo yeah like they put it in a different format it was for the trailers i think it was they did a, a trailer it was the trailer so you wouldn't see the the productions and it confused people because it was like out of you know different perspective yep like the whole trailer just changes you're like what are you doing <laughs> Like, way to save 11 cents, Disney. Jesus Christ, you own most of the United States. You could shell out. <laughs> oh, I've got something to say on trailers real quick. Before I get to that. Motherfucker oh, had a
3: three-minute trailer. Nick, you, do you have more production bits? I do. Go for it. This was executive produced by the Kirk Douglas, the patriarch of the Douglas family. He apparently had bought the rights and had originally intended to play the role of the father, uh, but it just didn't happen. His son remained on the project as well, Peter Douglas. Okay. But Kirk Douglas has been executive producer before for The Final Countdown, Spartacus, and The Devil's Disciples. And distributed by uh, Buena Vista Distribution Company, who also distributed The Watch in the Woods, Frank and Weenie, and Bedknobs and Broomsticks.
1: We should do those three as an episode. <laughs> Watcher in the Woods, Frank and Weenie, and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. flying <laughs> around in a bed. There's magic. That could be horror. It's perfect. Oh, uh, I watched Bedknobs and Broomsticks so much
0: as a kid. Yeah, no, we have we... now with... Angela Lansbury recently having passed away. So yeah. I've been meaning to rewatch that anyway. Core went out for my homie. I will just mention two other folks real quick the production designer and the costume designer. Because funnily enough, I didn't notice this until I noticed that they worked on a lot of the same projects and looking at their filmographies. Because apparently they're a husband and wife duo. Nice. I don't know for how long, but at least according to INDB, they were married for at least some duration of time. Richard McDonald is the production designer. He also worked on Secret Ceremony, the movie with Elizabeth Taylor, Mia Farrow, and Robert Mitchum, uh, Jesus Christ Superstore, Marathon Man, Exorcist 2, The Heretic, Altered States, Nice. uh, Supergirl, The Addams Family, Jennifer Eight, and The Firm. How? Note those last few because they're going to come up again. And then there's Ruth Myers, who is the costume designer. And she worked on The Ruling Class, which is a Peter Medak film that I absolutely love. Weirdly enough, we'll probably get to that when we get to Species 2, because Peter Medak did that as well. But Dracula, the Richard Matheson screenplay Dracula that Jack Palance was in, she did Altered States, Adam's Family and The Firm, so same as Richard McDonald. She was also the costume designer on Vibes, which no no one gives a shit about Vibes, but I'll throw
3: it... Oh, shit, I think... I you, love Vibes! James, James Horner did the score for Vibes! Holy shit! I, I didn't think of that at the time. Yes. I love Vibes! I made Hannah watch it. It was great. <laughs> There's one great joke in Vibe. <laughs> Someone's been sleeping on it. You can anyway. go now.
1: <laughs> what the hell is Vibe's? It's Jeff Goldblum and Cyndi Lauper yeah. as uh, psychics. Oh, okay. So two quick things. One, I've got my own production note. Oh. Which is wow. very stupid. No, it's uh, the, just a, a note about the Town Square set that they use for this. Oh, yeah. The Town Square and the wrought iron Gazebo was used in the other great Disney horror movie, Mr. Boogity. I love Mr. Boogity. And I was just happy to be able to say Mr. Boogity on the podcast again. It's important. The other thing is, when you were listening to those, Eric, it sounded to me like you said, Jesus Christ Superstore, and now I very much want to see that movie. <laughs> I'm latching on to anything to keep me from thinking about the Sixers, because I have a Sixers hat on, and I keep seeing it in my camera here, so anyway. Well, I'll talk about something you like, which is Ruth Myers was also, just one other thing as
0: far as costume designer. She was the costume designer for LA Confidential, which I know you and I both like, but interestingly enough she was also the costume designer for the unmade television show they shot a, te- a pilot for a tv version of it which was written by jordan harper who's a fantastic crime novelist and directed by michael dinner who worked on justified walton goggins was in it justified so good i just thought that was interesting that she did the movie and then years later did the tv show as well she also did the costumes for scary stories to tell in the dark
2: nice that was, that was
0: a good looking movie yeah it was so Some fun costume stuff there. So yeah, so sorry for rambling on that, but I thought it was interesting.
1: No,
2: it's good.
0: Some of the credits, but also that it was a, it seems to be a husband and wife production designer and costume designer duo, which I thought was fun. Um, On the subject of the trailers. The very long trailers. And I'm sure we'll talk about it, but one of the things that happened that led to the reshoots on this movie were that Disney considered the movie too dark, as did Ray Bradbury. And one of the issues he had with it was, apparently thought it was too dark.
1: Did anybody watch the teaser trailer? Not the theatrical trailer, the teaser trailer. Nope. I don't believe so. I meant to, and I didn't get, I didn't remember to go back and do that. I remember something about that that came up when I was researching, but I don't, I didn't write it down, so. It looks like a goddamn phantasm movie! There's no
0: dialogue, there's no score, it's just shots of the train, and like the sounds of breathing, and when they show Mr. Dark, they color in his eyes so they're red. And it's like the train is shooting lightning off and it ends with Will like shooting up bolt up right in bed with a red filter. And then you get the bloody ass look. It, like, it, I would have shit like five pairs of pants if I was a kid <laughs> who saw that in a theater in 1983. Holy shit.
1: Awesome. That's amazing.
0: So it, it just struck me. It was like, wait a minute. You said the movie was too dark and this was the teaser you ran for it? <laughs> I'm not kidding. It looks like fucking Angus Scrim should have been playing Mr. Dark.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, that, but that tracks because I know the book was a huge influence in, in the making of Phantasm. Yep. Yeah. Yes, it was. So it sounds like they were like, yeah, let's make a Phantasm trailer. It, isn't the trailer? Uh, that's what it was. The trailer is where I guess you can see some remnants of the original opening scene that they scrapped. Yeah, they didn't like those effects either because they thought they were too hokey with the smoke forming ropes and such, yeah. I poked around to see if I could find that in the hand in terms of, like, deleted scenes, but they didn't seem to be anywhere online. Not that I saw. Apparently, Clayton's
0: Cut still exists. Uh, I think it was on the wiki, supposedly. Clayton's Cut still exists on a VHS, which is in, like, a Bradbury Museum of some kind. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe someday we'll get lucky enough to see that. I don't know. I, I obviously would be very curious to see it.
1: Hell yeah. That would be number two on my list of alternate cuts that I'd like to see with the the original cut of Disturbing Behavior. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, yes. At least with Disturbing Behavior, we have a lot of the scenes, but yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: All right. So, uh, let me run down some of the actors real quick, because they have some interesting history here. So, first off, Charles Holloway is played by Jason Robards, who's also been in uh, A Boy and His Dog, Johnny Got His Gun, and The Day After.
1: And Tora, Tora, Tora. And tour, tour, tour. oh man! The, the day after, I can't even. I watched that as a kid. It's rough, and it. I remember having nightmares, and just like my brother has recently gone back and watched it, and he, he's mentioned that I should watch it again. And I don't. I when I the, even conceptually the idea of watching that again fills me with trepidation.
3: It's rough. Yeah, it is a hard
1: film to watch. And but I saw it as a fucking kid, you know, mm-hmm. in the Cold War when that shit was like. I thought you know nuclear war was happening on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. You know. I remember at least once as a kid thinking, why should I do my homework if the world's going to blow up tomorrow, you know? And then we watched that shit on TV. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking generational trauma. Jason Robards was a fascinating choice
3: considering all the people they considered for it. You know, there's also Darren McGavin, Dick Van Dyke, Dean Jones, Walter Matthau, Jack Lemon, James Garner, and Hal Holbrook.
1: all were considered for the role. One of my notes originally was like, you know, we're supposed to buy that, that Jason Robards is 56 in this? he looked, man, looks like 78. It turns out he was like 61. Yeah, yep, 61. he was 61. he this. He just has that always 10 years
3: older than he is look. He's always the, the father figure.
0: Man, oh man, I kind of wish Mathow had gotten
2: it. That
3: would have been fun.
0: <laughs> just because then, like, in the climactic sequences where he has to act happy, he still looks grumpy as fuck. <laughs> 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 Laugh, damn it!
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but then you would have had to get Jack Lemmon to play Mr. Dark. Or
3: ah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He would absolutely, like, nailed 100% that whole, like, midlife crisis kind of, like, ennui. You know, <laughs> that would have been perfect. But, yeah, he never would have pulled up out of the fall. Walter, <laughs> <It> just... <laughs> you're smiling. Smile it up. I can't.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Mr. Dark was played by the great Jonathan Price, who honestly might have been my favorite part of this whole film. Just top to bottom. The man is amazing. I love him who you may have seen from such films as Voyage of the Damned, Stigmata, Adventures of Baron Munchausen, and Brazil. Oh, no. What did you want me to say? Oh, you were so close with Brazil. It's...
0: J- Jumpin' Jack Flash, man. We talked about this oh, in the yeah. Lord of evolutions thing, <laughs> which we recorded, there. but just coming out. Yes, he's in Jumpin' Jack Flash. <laughs> no one should give it. a shit about that, but my, my <laughs> mother watched Jumpin' Jack Flash. <laughs> All the time. So for me, Jonathan Price is—I I love him as an actor. My mom
1: loves Whoopi Goldberg. She was a big fan of that movie. Yep. Not as much as Sister Act, but it was on the- Sister. Yep. I was about to say Sister that Act. Sister
0: Act. Yeah. But so yeah, for me, Jonathan Price is always the dude who shows up at the tail end of what years voiced throughout. But yeah, yeah. So I probably brought that up in um, when we did Night Angel because Roscoe Lee Brown does the voiceover for that,
1: and Roscoe Lee Brown is in that too. I recently rewatched uh, Game of Thrones, and he plays the High Sparrow in that. Yeah. So when I'm watching him, it was like, oh man. He's still playing this shithead when he's old, too. Yep. But he was... He, yeah, I, I... Hmm. Favorite part of this? I feel like it's got to be close, is Jonathan Price's performance. Especially in the scene, in the two scenes in the library. Oh, yeah. He nailed it in the library. And when he's interrogating Jason Robards above the great mm-hmm. dripping blood on the kids. Yes! I, I, those two scenes I thought were just beauts. I love those. They are by far the best
3: scenes. I do also like when he's interrogating Tom Fury. Even in those moments, I thought he was really, like, I think he just brought the necessary pathos to that character, and without it, the movie would not have made it. So I think he was a crucial part.
1: And the elevated shoes in some scenes.
3: Yes, because they wanted him to look particularly ominous and towering over everyone. He's already, like, six one, but they gave him two-inch heels for the parade scene. And it works. It's I think it was a fine choice. I had no idea he was
0: that tall already, like, even, with, yeah. like, even before the lifts. I was like, oh, shit, I didn't realize he was that tall. I guess, aside from those scenes you mentioned, probably my favorite is the button on the end of the scene where he confronts Charles Holloway above the grate where he is clenching his fists and dripping blood and and is like, I'm going to come see you in the library later. And then as one of the baddest ass mean mug exits of any movie of just holding eye contact and glaring at Holloway but not like walking a fucking parade strutting out of there slowly <laughs> to a funeral <laughs> march. <laughs> it's not like he is. Like it takes him like 10 minutes of holding eye contact to make it out of the block.
2: <laughs> like,
3: man, that's an exit. <laughs> I think they were playing the funeral march in reverse. If I remember correctly, I could be wrong yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But still, yes, absolutely. It's funny. It, it may be because of the, the, the game of Thrones rewatch. When I was, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about if they did a remake today or an adaptation of it today. Who I'd want to play Mister Dark and Charles Dance was the one I kept coming back to. Ooh, that could be fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, he'd work.
1: I think he's too subtle. I
3: think Jonathan Price has like good bursts of energy. I don't know if Dance would necessarily hit, but
0: it could work. Yeah. Um, for me, Price is I, I like him in this, and I think in in isolation, he's fine. Like, I think a lot of folks who grew up on this talk about, oh, my God, he was so creepy, creeped me out as a kid. And that means he did his job. I think he captures the, the menace element of Mr. Dark mm-hmm. pretty well. What what I wish they had leaned into more is the the facade of pleasantry that comes through much more in the source material. That's
3: fair. That's fair.
0: It's, it's just not something they play up in, in the film. And it's not a failing of it, but it's an element of the book I really liked of this thing that is decidedly not human. Mm-hmm. That feels like it is trying way too hard to be pleasant. Yeah. And you know, with this constant smile, but these yellow eyes and, and the theatrics. It, it's one of the elements of Mr. Dark that's lost is the theatricality that comes with the position of being kind of the ringleader of this carnival. Yeah. And then kind of the... And so some of the charisma that kind of comes with that is kind of lost. But I do think he he nails the bits essentially in the novels where the mask falls off mm-hmm. and you get the underlying menace. I think he he does that quite well. Like you said, the scene in the library is terrific.
1: Uh, ah, John Glover and Sam L Jackson were the other two that I kept thinking about. But
0: John, yeah, oh well, Sam Jackson would be awesome. But no, in terms of like how I it, the demeanor stuff I'm talking about, John Glover would probably be the closest in being able to capture like the elements of dark that a that as as I read them in the book,
1: but again in isolation. Well, you mentioned Walter Goggins earlier, and now I kind of want to see that. He's got these yellow eyes, but all I can look at are his teeth.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, speaking of Tom Fury, uh, he was played by Royal Dano, who you may have noticed in Killer Clowns from Outer Space, The Dark Half, Ghoulies Two, and maybe my favorite role of his, House Two. Yeah, he's in a lot of twos for franchises yeah. one to get two. <laughs> I was looking at that. <laughs> oh. But he makes me very happy. I love seeing him. Speaking of the kids real quick, they did have very limited roles. Will Halloway is played by Vidal Peterson, who was in the Thornbirds, Never Forget, and Wizards of the Lost Kingdom. And Jim Nightshade is played by Sean Carson from Toby Hooper's The Funhouse. Yes. And Cry for the Strangers. So he did like three horror movies. How
0: funny is that? Of of all movies to be in before this, he was in The Fun House. <laughs> it's a fascinating choice. He's the shitty little brother in The Fun House.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then they dumped 200 tarantulas on him. And he's like, I'm going to go be an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> and I got two more
3: people to talk about because they're very important to this conversation for two different reasons. One, the Dust Witch, who is played by Pam Greer god mm-hmm. bless which is
1: an odd choice for this she's perfect because pam greer is fucking hot and that. the dust witch is not in the book ah. Clayton talked about that in an interview
0: where they, they asked him about that so so why why did you cast pam greer as the dust witch or something like that and he said basically that i don't have the exact quote in front of him but basically he's like i i, I think an attractive witch is much more interesting you know they got a billion movies with you know witches and a lot of makeup and stuff he's like he thought it was more intriguing, so that was, I guess, his angle. Look,
1: I ain't saying it's bad. I'll oh, watch no, no,
0: I'm just Pam saying I, it, it, it was something that was broached in terms of that being a, a notable diversion
1: from the source material. It's because in the book, you know, they describe an you know, old crone, blind, all this, you know, really, really gross. And then you see the film, it's Pam Grier. And I'm like, well, that's different. Better. Different. I love it.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Pam Greer, of course, was in Scream, Blackula Scream,
3: Mars Attacks, and coming in twice For our John Carpenter connection, she was in Ghosts of Mars and Escape from L.A. (laughs) If you didn't say Ghosts of Mars, there was going to be big and. (laughs) And important to me, at least one more person to talk about. There is a part of the carnival. They have uh, one particular little person who is played by Angelo Rosito, who you may have seen in Whisper to a Scream, Freaks, The Wizard of Oz. Dracula versus Frankenstein, and the part of Master from Master Blaster in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Yep. Ah, oh, made me so happy. I love that man. <laughs> he does a good job. Sorry, kids, come back in ten years.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: he has a great <laughs> in this movie. Too <laughs> oh, young. Thanks for the rundown. My pleasure. So... So where do we all stand on the film itself? Like, Just general thoughts on the film.
3: I love it. But then again, I'm biased. I'm going to love it because I saw it young. I love it. I love everything Ray Bradbury. I was
0: about to say, so when did you see it?
3: I couldn't even tell you. Um, I know I was little. So it was on HBO? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it on HBO. <laughs> Something
0: wicked this way comes, money. <laughs>
3: How do you get your Ray Bradbury when you're young? Through the HBO. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Fraggle Rock money every goddamn time. Fraggle Rock money!
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I said- I'm going to the Baltimore Comic Con <laughs> after we record this. I'm going to wear that shirt every fucking day with a sign that says, Ask me about this t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> but don't get me
3: wrong. Obviously, as is true with most films in my opinion the book is better uh the book is just riddled with beautiful prose and writing and is above and beyond what the film is that being said i don't think you could properly convey that into a film a without losing something and b without it being like five hours long So, I mean, (laughs) we we call that the Mike Flanagan challenge. (laughs) I would love to see Mike Flanagan try a remake of this. I think it would be wonderful. It would probably be better.
1: I'd like to see Mike Flanagan
3: do a Cheerios commercial. But yeah, I get uh... (laughs) you. But that being said, I still very much love the look and feel of this. I love the acting involved. I love the choices that were made and. I love the grimness of it. I love the fantasy of it. And I, and of course, I love the, you know, joy and love conquering in the end, like I normally do. So,
1: yeah, it was great. Uh, you know, if, it's funny, if I'm being honest, you know, if I wanted to see if there was a new adaption of it now, I think the guy I'd most like to see do it would be Ryan Spindell. Oh, hmm. but that just me because I, I think he's made one perfect Halloween movie. That captures the feeling of October, and that's such a strong important thing with this book for me.
0: Yeah. Go watch the Mortuary Collection on
1: Shudder. Yeah. Then listen to last year's Halloween episode that we did. On it. But yeah. One year anniversary, the best joke I ever make on the podcast. Anyway. So as far as this film, I had never seen it. As again, because of the aforementioned two hundred tarantulas. And,
2: <laughs>
1: and I was I was excited to watch it because I, I have read the book a couple of times. And I enjoyed it. It's by no means perfect. Uh, the end feels like it kind of spirals out of control and doesn't really land. But I thought the first half, you know, where, where you get like, you know, even just like the fucking Simpsons ass to town that the boys take when they're running through in the beginning hit the right notes for the, the that feeling that I keep talking about. And I thought Jason Robards did a good job portraying the ennui of Will's dad and that that notion of. Not quite regret, but certainly some regret. And yeah. I think the whole thing was worth it for the two scenes between him and Jonathan Price in the library yes. and on the grate. Yes. Like that, those two scenes were enough for me for the entire film. But beyond that, I thought they did a good job. Like the opening scene with the train, I thought was cool. I think there's a lot to like here and there's a lot to dislike. Like it, it's, if I had to classify it, like just pure not. You know talking about enjoyment or anything, I would say it is a misfire. ouch, I would say that they miss a lot of the broader importance of the book and they don't get quite the emotional core of the story, correct That said, I think it's a very fun horror type Halloween movie, and i'll I'll definitely be watching this will get to my yearly watches with you know Halloween, mortuary Collection a few other things. oh nice.
0: That's nice that it'll go in the rotation.
1: It'll definitely go in the rotation because in part the first half, those two scenes, and I think it just I think it does just enough to be competent, even though it's a misfire. I think they get just enough of what needs to be there to make it still enjoyable, but frustrating in a way because it's you can see the bones of the right thing, and it's just not quite there. But that said, I get the feeling you didn't like it very much, Eric.
0: Uh no. Well, before I go,
1: Nick, did you have something
0: to
3: add? I just wanted to bounce off of what Jake said real quick. I think a lot of your concerns might have been better in a modern setting with a proper budget and special effects. Um I also, going back to the great scene where they're talking over the great, that that one moment where the fingers come up and the father and son like kind of like hold hands through the grate, it just like killed me. (laughs) I just died. I'm like, oh I love you guys.
1: It wasn't the effects or, you know, even that it's the the lack of the, the ending about this is so much about happiness and joy in the face of this stuff. And it feels so like, oh, uh, dance. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Okay. Uh, skittledy Bebop. And this was good enough. And they, you know, so they don't quite get. Well, yes. And I, I think the other problem is, is that I think Will and his dad's connection left me a little cold. Like it didn't quite work. And also Will and Jim Nightshade. Like Jim Nightshade I feel is a little bit off. Well, Jim Nightshade is less of the rebel in the movie than he is in the book. Right. They end up they, like for lack of a better word, they feel disnified. Yeah. Yes. I will give you that. It is disnified. And there's there's supposed to be a bit of a two sides of the same coin kind of vibe to Will and Jim. And it's just it's just not there. Nope. In this. That that does come up flat. That's true
0: what i'll say before i get into my thought on the film is so what i'll one thing i'll say at the top is in isolation removing the fact that it's an adaptation and i didn't grow up with it but in terms of whether or not this is an effective movie just based on its reputation i would say it's absolutely effective particularly as a gateway horror film because if you look Mm. at reviews of it so many people say i grew up watching it it's the movie that got me into horror it scared me as a kid you know, oh, oh, it's one of my favorite films. So and and that was from Disney's perspective, you know, the company that was making it, trying to target a young audience. That's the demographic they were aiming for. And the people who saw it at that age certainly remember it. So it seems like in that context, it was effective. This sounds like I'm, I'm about to shit all over the film, which I'm not because I'm actually pretty close to where Jake is. So in and of itself. Well, actually, let me talk about an adaptation element of it first this goes back to what we were talking about with James DeMatteis and talking about the material which is if you read the first page like if you if someone handed you something wicked this way comes and you hadn't read it before and said we need you to to adapt this into a film as soon as you open it and as soon as you read the first page because literally the opening the prologue is like a single page of text first of all it was october a rare time for boys yep if you were to just read that instantly and then even it gets further hammered home even more when you get to the the point where characters are talking, because, like we said with James DeMatteis, it is not that dialogue is not made to be spoken. Yes, it it is made to be felt, and the same goes for the prose, where you have this bit. Like now, you have the voiceover, which bookends the film in the finished version. It wasn't there in Clayton's cut. It was something Bradbury insisted, uh, apparently insisted that they add. Uh, Real quick, if I haven't mentioned it, it, there's a video on YouTube of Ray Bradbury talking ahead of a screening of the film, where basically the way he describes it is, I believe he and Clayton were friends. He pushed for Clayton to do the film. Bradbury did the draft of the screenplay. I read a draft of Bradbury's based on the notes. I think it was the uh, draft he did when they started the reshoots. Clayton brought in John Mortimer for rewrites, which didn't make Bradbury happy. Bradbury gave him some notes, which Clayton disregarded, and that kind of created a rift. They saw the finished product, thought it was all wrong, and shit the bed at a preview screening. Disney called Bradbury in. Again, this is according to him at this YouTube video. Disney called Bradbury in, and and Bradbury apparently spent the whole production telling Disney, this is going to be a disaster. We need to stop. This isn't going the right way. And after the test screening, Disney called him in, and Disney apparently told him, don't tell us you told us so. And Bradbury said, I can't, there's no time. Here's what we need to do. And he said, we need to get reshoots. We need to redo this. We need to put in narration, et etc." Et the narration, I think, is an interesting example of something that works in prose, but not in the film, where what you end up with is something that feels really incongruous to me. And when you look at the source material of adapting something wicked, this way comes as a novel. To me, it's like, all right, you have a choice. Are you going to adapt the plot? Or are you going to adapt the feel of this book? Because you're going to have an extraordinarily difficult time doing both. Yes. And making it feel cohesive visually, because so much of it is about your relationship with the text. Yes. And when I read this, when we were uh, when we first read it for our Borders book club, and I read it, I got like two pages in, and I said, "All right, again, I had them back in my head that it was, you know, that there was a movie made of it, and not knowing how it turned out, and it was like, well, holy shit, you would need to get." Roger Deakins would need to be your DP for this. That would be like the first call you would make because you need someone who can shoot this and make the visuals and the colors as sumptuous as the prose is and something Uh that, that is at least evocative of that vibrance. But it is such a balancing act that works, I think, so uniquely in prose that I don't think you can capture it in live action like as a one to one. So your choice is between plot or tone, broadly speaking. This movie, generally speaking, went for capturing the plot, which I'm not saying was the wrong choice. But and so what you went up as a result of that is, all right, well, we captured most of the plot beats, but there are elements there that are lost. And the big one being the relationship between Jim and Will. Now, I will say in Bradbury's draft, it's not all like it was in the book, but a lot of the little beats of them and them having these personalities that, you know, counterbalance each other. And little emotional bits and more of the Jim Nightshade's inner turmoil and him being actually tempted by the carnival and bits. All that stuff comes through much more in the script. So a lot of that stuff was cut, I assume, for time. The other thing is, like Jake kind of mentioned, is I think the kids in this are fine, but I don't think they're particularly great. And so what you end up with is you end up with the, the kid element of this feeling, like Jake said, they just feel like generic Disney kids. And it's fine in terms of making a Disney adventure, but in terms of actually having an emotional investment or, you know, something that feels more emotionally satisfying when you get to the end, that element of it just ends up kind of falling flat.
3: Oh, yeah. Fuck those kids. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you, no, you're right. It, it, the I'm kids... glad they
1: only were in three movies apiece.
3: <laughs> the kids, to some degree, end up becoming MacGuffins. They, they themselves are just getting you to where you need to go to get Charles and uh, Mr. Dark together.
0: Yeah. And and in in fairness, it's a Herculean task because so much of, in terms of the source material, so much of the stuff for those kids is inner monologue. It's not even dialogue. And Uh again, even when it's dialogue, it's not something that you can just kind of grab it off the page and throw it onto the screen. So you have to externalize all these, you know, Will's inner monologues and Jim's inner monologues and what have you. And that's insanely difficult to just externalize it in terms of just putting it, you know, into a script, let alone have you know, young actors convey that in a convincing way. Right. So what you end up with is, we talked in our chat with James DeMatteis, how for me, in the book chapter 28, the Tomcat talk sequence where Will talks to his dad on the page is one of my favorite things in any book ever. In the finished film, it it's a perfectly fine scene but not a
1: lot of emotional resonance.
0: No. Uh-huh. No, there's a couple beats where it feels like almost, but, you know, the ending of it, for example, where he's trying to coax his father to come up the latter for mm-hmm. a bit, and 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 that bit, it's even in isolation from, you know, trying to take the relation to the source material out of it, just viewing it in and of itself, it doesn't quite feel like that hits the emotional beats that it should have based on all the dialogue that led up to it and the tone that led up to it. So I I think that's one of the big problems with it is the kid stuff just feels very perfunctory. Fair, right? and and so much of it's carved out. And again, if I was a kid watching this, it would have been all right. Well. Kids running around doing kids stuff, like I said, it's generic, but as a kid, I would have still enjoyed it because yeah, I can identify with these kids. Whatever. You know, kids running around from spooky carnival shit.
3: The kids become just the actual roller coaster ride cart. You hop in. It doesn't matter what the cart looks like or does, it's just taking you through the movie. <laughs> yeah. But the interesting thing about that is, in terms of
0: Jack Clayton being the director, is if there's one thing Jack Clayton can do well, it's direct. Child actors with complex material because he absolutely did it in the innocence
1: mm-hmm. yep.
0: and if, for folks who haven't seen our mother's house, same thing that is very dark material in both those cases, and both those movies have phenomenal performances now a lot of that I'm sure is casting, but clearly one of Clayton's gifts was his ability to direct child actors to really memorable performances that doesn't come through here for whatever reason and then you're left with the the tone element of so this is a film we talked keep going back to our talk with James Dematteis. But we talked about how so much of this book is walking a precipice between terror and whimsy dark emotions of regret and then you know brighter emotions of childlike innocence and joy jack clayton is adept at one of those he's very adept at the darker elements of mm-hmm. it if you look at his whole filmography he's very adept at the Darker Elements of the Soul, you know, Innocence, Our Mother's House, uh, Room at the Top. These are both you know, films that, that focus on you know dark, complex emotions. Uh, he even did The the Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn, which is sad as shit, But he did after this. So he's very good at those. But the question is, how good are you at whimsy? We're great at the Merc. How good are we at the whimsy? And not so much in the finished film. And it sounds like even less so in the original cut. It sounds like they leaned even more into that in his original cut of the film. And which I think would have been, like, from the sounds of it, we'll never know, because currently we can't see that cut. But what it feels like, just based on what we have and taking into mind the scenes that are obviously reshot, it sounds like Clayton's version of the film is a version that I probably would have pretty thoroughly disliked if I was a kid, but found much more interesting as an adult but disassociating it from the book. It seems like he would have really leaned into the darker elements of it, the darker elements of the parents and the more complex emotional elements. So it would have been something that would have been more interesting to me as an adult, but in that respect would have been even further from the source material because it would have been even further removed from the stuff of the kids.
3: Yeah, that that tracks. Well thought out and said. See, I'm such a basic B. Everything you said was brilliant and well thought out and brilliant. I'm like, hey, good villain. (laughs) (laughs) i do think good villain yeah i I do like i said i
0: there there are a lot of elements of the character from the book i i wish they had done yes but i i love jonathan price i'll say this in terms of it's funny we were talking earlier about how they were short on money for effects and you couldn't do all the visuals they wanted to and a lot of visuals they threw out it's funny like the one visual they had it was like well we don't have money for this this and this it was like but if you need animated smoke (laughs) <laughs> We're making Black Cauldron right now, so we got a shitload of animated smoke you can have. Because it was. This was right around the time of Black Cauldron, so it
1: was going to have all these
0: like murky uh, green smoke effects. It was like, oh, yeah, There's we got
1: animated smoke in this.
0: We can give you all these animation cells from Black Cauldron from all these scenes, of so that we cut.
3: You know, it was a subtle little thing, but I really loved the animated pages as he pulled them out of the book. Uh, they kind of glowed. That was nice.
0: Yeah, they they do some fun visual, like in the opening, where the the title form something wicked this way comes and then they fade into train and what a creepy ass font too god damn it is yeah they use that in the teaser trailer again that's another one that was like jesus christ this is like fucking phantasm and some shit (laughs) but like when the train light hits the the logo in the opening they actually animate like the edges of it to give it like it's reflecting off the text and little touches like that i like the book bit as well i liked them adding him ripping the bible so he had something physical give because in the original book he's just reading off you know 31 gone 32 going going gone and he's kind of prattling him off and this having him actually tearing through this bible and having something to, to actually punctuate those beats helped that land very very well i was like oh that's a really good ad and then him fucking throwing the bible at him when he's done that was a really good ad but related to that like speaking of black cauldron it's one of the things i kept thinking of which is if if you had to adapt this, like, back in the 80s, I really would have pushed to have done it as an animated film.
1: Oh. oh man, this is an animated, like, some Ralph Bashy ass shit. That could be good. Yeah.
0: Well, who I was thinking of, too, is, like, this would have been around the time that I think Don Bluth broke away from Disney and then ended up doing Secret and NIMH. And, like I said, I don't think it would have been great. Because, again, there's, in, in terms of being, you can't do a one-to-one transition of this. If
1: you did it with a lot more narration. Hmm.
0: You either need to lean into it, or because, like I said, we, when you end up with just the bookends of it, as you do it in the finished film, I think they feel really out of place. And to me, it's like I don't I don't think they add that much. If it had been an element throughout and you had leaned on it, it would have felt more organic. But in the end, I I think adding that stuff in the way they did in the finished film, is like it, it just feels off. But if you had leaned into it, leaned into the narration and that element that you're looking at something that is... That is artistic. You're not looking at live action footage. You're looking at something animated. You're already pulling yourself back from a degree of reality then. And so that gives you, you know, if you can have an animated character speaking these lines as written, you know, as you know, like I said, the conversations in this book are conversations that nobody has ever had, but they feel like the emotional distillation of
4: conversations that have been had.
0: But I think that dialogue would have translated much better to an animated film you could have leaned into a balance of elements in animation more and you also could have just captured kind of the visual element of it i think a lot easier
1: it's also easier to picture as an animated film than it is as a live action even having just seen the live action
0: yeah it just seemed to me i was like man i if i was like if i was don bluth it was like man i would have like tried to get the rights to this or mm. something like that because when he was one of the things don bluth was trying to do at the time was make darker animation which funnily enough disney was starting to do at this point with black cauldron which they ended up then dialing back and cutting a lot of those elements out of it and even then it when they finally released it it was essentially a disaster because and folks thought
1: it was too dark of course if it had been made back then it had been like a 22 minute halloween special that you know was like uh essentially the black ferris
0: yeah pretty much yeah what what you would have ended up with it. this is all yeah in in the ideal circumstances, I think at this particular point in time, like if you were to make it in eighty-three, I think that would have been your best bet. Might still be. And yeah, because like I was thinking about like doing it like contemporaries, like, would you do it? And it's again, it's in trying to replicate it as written, it's such a balancing act. And I'm not sure it I think it would be exceptionally difficult to pull off. I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's it would be exceptionally difficult. And there's also an element of and and this sounds dismissive, but there's also an element of why bother? Hmm. Because it's just like just this is one of those. It's like, just let the text be the text.
1: But it influenced every other fucking horror movie we watch. Why do we need this again? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it, again, the
0: movie certainly has, you know, significant of value, value because it was a gateway horror film with kids. One of the things in terms of how it executes horror that I think is so interesting is this movie in terms of Disney trying to dial back the terror. This movie is such a great argument for the effectiveness of sound in a horror film. Yep. Because, so, one of the main things people talk about fucking them up as kids is the scene when Will and Jim run out of the tent and there's the guillotine. Yep. And the guillotine blade comes down, and it cuts, and there's a, you know, the wax head of Will, complete with like fucking blood everywhere. And you see his kid's decapitated head and you hear the kids, ah! You don't hear a thunk. Nope. There is no Foley effect, or it's a very muffled one when the blade falls. So it's clearly it's saying we're okay with the visual of a severed head, but adding a hook is too much. Yep. And then the same thing in the sequence in the library, when Charles Holloway is confronted by the Dust Witch, or I'm sorry, before that, it's it's when he's confronting Dark and Dark grabs his hand and crushes Holloway's hand and... and breaks all the bones in his hands you see his skin split open yep but you don't hear it there is no foley yep so it's interesting like in terms of disney trying to figure out like how to sanitize this and make it a degree of horror that they were comfortable releasing and marketing to kids that it's sound that's too far huh i just i think that's such an interesting thing it was like all right we take the sound out of it we can leave the creepy visuals in we can get away with the severed head without the Foley that precedes it. So I think it's it's just interesting. I'm
3: curious about something here. Hmm. So this was early 80s. And during the early 80s, they had Saturday morning cartoons of all sorts for lots of kids. And what they tended to do in the formatting was they wrote those early cartoons like radio shows. Okay. You could not be watching them and still not miss a damn thing because everything is narrated. Oh, no, he's firing the gun. You know, shit like that. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is completely presented to you. I I almost wonder if there was like an industry uh, feeling that it's like if I was a parent in the other room doing something and my kids were watching this, would this bug me? And therefore, the audio was so crucial in that. Whereas him, you know, those... Events happening are less important because mom or dad doing laundry in the other room aren't going to see it. But if they don't hear it, maybe it's okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Hmm. yeah there's, sorry, there's just so much to think about, and I, I, I so wish we could see the other cut of this. Yes. Just to see the other elements of it. Like one thing I know that was different was Bradbury talked about how they had to fix the ending and add the narration to the ending, and that the ending was changed. I don't know what exactly the ending was in Clayton's draft. But I do know in the script, it ends the same way the film does with them running and, and you know, skipping through town and whatnot. But then as the credits roll, this is how it reads in the script, which is, it says, a series of dissolved morning, And so this is stuff going on in the background as the end credits roll. Miss Foley, in her night clothes, opening her front door to pick a milk bottle off her step. She is her old self. Tom Fury, with his bag, standing at the end of Main Street, thumbing a lift out of town. Mr. Tetley, hauling his wooden Indian from inside his store. Mr. Crossetti, in his barbershop, donning his overalls. Ed the barman, sweeping the sidewalk outside his bar. Camera pans to the poster on the wall, tattered for now, for Dark's Pandemonium Carnival, and across it, a sticker which reads, Returning Soon by Popular Demand. Fade out. So I have to assume that that was still there in the Clayton cut, because it feels like a a very Clayton element, which is, and we ah, can't all be sunshine. We got to have this button. The script also specifies that as the carnival destroys itself, as they flee it, they can see that the train has basically reformed and the train is moving on to another town. I will say in terms of the the climactic scene, which you touched on earlier, whereas you have this compromised version of what occurs in the novel in terms of the scene where they think Jim Nightshade is dead. It's not with tears that you can you know defeat the darkness. It's with laughter. It's with positivity. Much more of that in, in the script.
4: Well,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. The, the element of dark being killed, you know, by, by being stuck on the carousel instead of the bit with him disguised as a child and, and Holloway hugging him like it does in the novel that element of dark's death is still there in the script, but there was a much longer sequence, pretty much verbatim from the book of them, you know, dancing and singing and this extended thing. Whereas in the finished film, you get, you know, Oh, I got a laugh kid. And Jason Robards does one. I'm a whooping crane. And all of a sudden Jim's like, I'm cured. <laughs> motherfucker.
2: So...
3: It's interesting because like, you know, the original book is love conquers all love and joy and hope saves the day. Whereas in this it's love, hope and joy will be a solve to those who are wounded, but really lightning, man. Lightning is what it takes (laughs) to kill
2: monsters.
3: (laughs) You got a dust witch? Lightning induced rod. You got some kind of like whacked out, you know, Carnival Barker, you know, up in your johns? Get some lightning down. It's gonna get you what you need. <laughs> the lightning rod salesman wastes no time. As soon as that
0: fucking electric chair shuts down, he's like, "I'm gonna show you why they call me Fury." Because he just <laughs> makes a fucking beeline to that hall of mirrors. He's like, "I'm gonna stab a motherfucker."
3: I'll show you the color of the lightning, bitch. So, if this movie's taught me anything, it's keep
1: some lightning in your pocket. You might just need it against the autumn people. <laughs> I just to talk about that a little bit. What do you think the autumn people are? Are they demons? Arguably, yes. You know, they're called Mr. Dark's Pandemonium Carnival,
3: which pandemonium is a Milton term, meaning the place where all the demons live or hell. Right. So, I mean, they say they come from the dust and they go to the grave. They could easily be demons. They could easily be fairy, like unseelie fairy to some degree, feeding off the uh, of the negative emotions and pathos.
1: Fae was kind of the... They feel more like Fae. Yeah, like, at least in, in the modern fiction kind of thing, like, mm-hmm. you know, fucking Neil Gaiman type thing, especially with them being tied to a season. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Demons. And I, I just thought that was interesting. But what a cool concept. The autumn people. I know, I right. It. I had forgotten that completely till he said it. And I'm like, oh, shit. And I spent some time kind of looking at it, and it comes up in a lot of his stuff that the autumn people. And I just I just thought that was so neat. And you don't really get the true nature of anything in this. Or at least of them, which is much better. But it does—it did make me think, and it did make me want to read more stories about the autumn people.
0: It's funny when you started that point just now. I was like, "Are you about to argue that they're the same thing that Pennywise is?" Because the whole thing is like, up—they oh, show up on a cycle every so often and feed on people. It'd or be the other back. way.
1: I think Pennywise would be among the autumn, like one of the autumn people, because because certainly something wicked this way Come was a big influence for Stephen King. I mean, you can't you can't read. Uh, needful things and not go oh yeah i saw this before yep yep you know or i know what this is from hell and, and part of the reason i thought about even i s- suggested it when i suggested it for this episode is because he had just talked about it in his new book fairy tale I was oh does he and he he comments he mentions it there's a, a sundial that deages people in that hmm. and he mentions it he specifically says something wicked this way comes but you know there's a lot of a lot of that book in a lot of his books, but it is very, very explicit in the new one. And that, that's what made me think of the film. And that's why I suggested it was because of that.
0: Oh, ah, okay.
3: I do have one big complaint about this. Uh, this film, I believe strongly fails the Bechdel test. <laughs> there, there are barely any women in it, period, let alone talking to each other. <laughs> Essentially four, right? Let's say hell, the
0: women have more in the movie than they do in the book. I think.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Like
0: there's there's more scenes with uh like Jim's mom I think in the in the movie I, I she has another scene in the script too that was cut.
3: Yeah. So
0: yeah, I don't know if that's a bribery thing that all his stuff kind of skews male. Oh, I'm not entirely sure. I haven't read
3: enough. Uh a fair amount of it does unfortunately. I don't think he does it on purpose. I think it's just no, all he knows. No, probably just a <laughs> yeah, product of the times. <laughs> yeah.
0: But oh, related note, uh if anyone was wondering so all the scenes in this movie with Jim's mother and her having a cat. The cat's name is Tybalt. T-Y-B-A-L-T, as specified in the script. They never say it in the film, but yeah, the cat's name is Tybalt. Nice. I just thought, that's a great name for a cat. That is a good cat name. I like it. And if anyone was wondering, so the script for this is not, or this particular draft of it, is not hard to find. And it's an interesting read, too, because this Bradbury adapting his own material. How much of this is Mortimer rewrites? I don't know. I assume not much. If anyone was wondering, like, whether or not Bradbury incorporates the sort of lyrical feel of his prose into his screenplays. The answer to that is, is sporadically, yes. For instance, there's the bit where Will's dad brings him a glass of milk at night you know, after his mom's pissed at him for coming home late. So here's the way that scene is written in the script as it ends as Will's dad is leaving. So it says, will, be careful, dad. Something's going on. Halloway, something will. Just be careful, okay? Halloway. Okay, now the script note. He goes, the door shuts. Will slowly rises, looks at the glass of milk. So white, so lovely,
2: (laughs) so filled with
0: summer. It is almost a tumbler full of sun and running and laughter. Will greedily gulps it down.
3: God, I I love Bradbury so much.
0: (laughs) All of a sudden, we hit this glass of milk, and he goes full prose
2: on it. It just...
0: (laughs) So it kind of goes back and forth, but there's every now and again he he really leans into the the, the lyrical description. He doesn't when the train pulls in. I'll read this bit real quick because it's it's not too long. This is as Will and Jim are have snuck out and they're seeing the train come through. Exterior railroad track, embankment, and graveyard. Night. The boys reach the shadow of an embankment. The train thunders above. The windows are empty. The boys' heads and eyes follow, looking up as their POV. The train passes. Carved circus car after car, cage after cage, with shadows pacing in them. Beasts carved and glaring from every cornice. Another angle, the boys. Run. off screen. the train whistle screams with a billion human voices in misery. Will stops, hands to his ears. Jim, Riven, stops with him amidst that wailing torment. Exterior graveyard, their POV. From the sound, as of a thousand dead souls, stone mm. angels weep dust from their eyes and mouths exterior railroad embankment will unplugs his ears jim relaxes both leap and run again exterior field night the boys run into shot stop short in open mouth disbelief as they see their pov the railroad track comes to an abrupt end in a writhing tortured jumble of rusty iron embedded in a tangle of grass and weeds back to the boys they stare at each other in open mouthed amazement turn to look at the track again and see in their appear the, the distance, a puff of smoke. And eventually I'll just skip ahead a bit. They get to the bit where the carnival is now sprung up. Unfortunately, the bit that was deleted where they actually have like the, the sequence they animated of the carnival kind of springing to life isn't outlined here. But when they see the carnival, it's described as the carnival is laid out there, complete dark, entire whole. It's reptilian skin, breathing, Ooh. sighing, from one of the tents, mirrors swarm and flash. Ah, oh, I love it. So you, you just have all these little touches there, but I get, you know, there's this bit about Stone Angels weeping dust, and in the finished film, it's like, well, we drew some, you know, pink cracks on them, and they made, like, you know, <laughs> gate squeal noises, which is a creepy visual, but it's it's not, you know, Stone Angels weeping
1: dust. Yeah, maybe the train really was blame the pain. This is a Stephen King thing.
2: Ha <laughs>
0: ha! One quick bit I'll read, just because if if I recall correctly, this, this scene isn't in the the book there is a scene similar to it but not this exact scene we get to see the local sheriff the whole bit in the book where they after they smash the teacher's window and she gets all pissed and they have to turn themselves into the cops Uh it is there in the script and we actually do get to see them turn themselves in where i believe in the book it's they show up and they say we're here and the teacher says that's them officer and then it cuts and they basically their dad's already bailed them out and and that's and they have a conversation as they're leaving the sheriff's office this is the bit of them going to to see the sheriff in the boy. Interior sheriff's office, night. The door bangs wide. The two boys skid to a stop as the sheriff, calmly adjusting his cards, he's playing gin with Mr. Douglas from the bar. Not even looking up, speaks. Sheriff, took you too long enough to get here? Will. Sheriff, we gotta. Will and Jim watch as the sheriff flips down a card. Sheriff, there's Foley called. Seems you broke a window. Jim blurts out. It wasn't sheriff cutting in lucky well, she's a nice lady you broke my window i'd have you in jail will the carnival you got a something terrible sheriff carnival's closed nights you've been down there you've been trespassing too well but mr Cressetti, he's sheriff laughs sick don't you believe it old Louis Cressetti brings that sign out every time he sneaks off to go fishing ain't that right doc douglas every time laying down cards gin Will,
2: you gotta listen!
0: The lightning rod man, Tom Fury, he's down there with with all those freaks! Sheriff, gathering up cards. Just where the damn idiot fool belongs. Sheriff, <laughs> he's crazier in a coot, walking around the state yelling dooms and damnations. Don't belong to this town, anyways. Don't cut no peach fuzz with me. Will, but Jim, we. Another angle. The sheriff puts down the cards, rises, strolls over to a cell door, pauses, looks at them. Sheriff, Breaking windows, trespassing, disturbing the peace—you boys is doing fine. He swings wide the cell door, gestures, "Come on in," <laughs> and that's the end of the scene. <laughs> I thought that was a cute button to, to come scene. on in. So yeah, yeah. Anyone who's curious, script's not hard to find. Track it down. There's definitely some bits and pieces in there that are fun, and it's fun to see how Bradbury reworks his own stuff.
3: I I think you make a solid argument for it being a flawed adaptation doesn't change the fact i had a blast watching it
0: yeah look, look i and to be be clear hopefully this goes without saying by now but just to be clear for anyone let's obviously it's like not out to change anybody's opinion if you love it Absolutely. or hate it hey you know this is just us sharing opinions trying to be entertaining not telling anybody they're right or wrong
1: and like i said I, i'm sure i'm often telling people they're right or
2: yeah, wrong yeah that's your but job not in this episode. <laughs> that's your job not our
3: job
1: people need to know <laughs> <laughs>
3: and
0: like i said at the top it's like i i certainly i do not think it's a bad film as much as i can disassociate it from the source material because i did read the source material first i think in and of itself it's an okay film and and sporadically very effective and like i said as an adult it feels like there's there's elements of it where it's falling short of stuff i'd like him to lean into in terms of you know the more emotionally complex stuff particularly with the adults and you know, it feels like they're they're really teetering. A lot of the you know stuff with Jason Robards, it feels like they're they're teetering on the edge of getting into something interesting with all you know his complex emotional you know reactions to being old. Whereas all we really get for the rest of the film is you know Jason Robards looking sad. He, he's fine, but he just mainly just looks sad for a lot of it. Like even in in the cutting back to the novel, but there's times where he at least tries to kind of put on a smile, and then it kind of falters a bit because of his inner insecurities. And this, he's mostly just like, his weak smile but you know pleasant but it's it's not as nuanced what we mainly get in the finished film is just the rest of the town being horny as fuck (laughs) (laughs) because the whole opening is basically in the guy at the cigar store man i want to get laid man the barber
2: man i want to get laid
0: (laughs) hey
2: look pam (laughs) (laughs) Greer.
0: so that's kind of all we end up in the finished. maybe that was a clayton ad. it's just everyone has to be way fucking hornier but so again yeah i i think it's in a fine film in and of itself, I think it's an interesting adaptation that succeeds in some ways. You know, certainly could have gone a lot worse. I said with material as complicated as this, certainly could have gone way worse. I know Bradbury was pretty content with it by all accounts. I don't think he loved it, but I think he said it was on the better end of, of adaptations of his. So, yeah, I I think it's an interesting film in a lot of respects. I'm delighted we had a chance to talk about it on the pod.
1: It's, it's funny that we've now done two of the... Uh the Disney gateway horror films, the big, the big, I would say the big four, probably a big three, but I'm throwing in Mr. Boogity, Mr. Boogity, because we've done this in Hocus Pocus and they're both incredibly horny. Very horny. This, I mean, this isn't quite as horny as Hocus Pocus, but like you just described, that whole town was, uh, basically edging their whole lives. And,
2: (laughs) It's so
0: funny in the Cressetti sequence when he's just holding hands with Pam Grier and all the close-ups of him. He's just,
2: <laughs> <laughs> just
0: like fucking lip trembling. But then you get a scene, too, in the film that's not in the book, which is them, you know, kind of peering in on the, you know, all the, the dancers and shit, you know.
1: Come back in 10 years! <laughs> and yeah, but now we, we got to do Watcher in the Woods and Mr. Boogity, because now I got I, I don't remember either of those being particularly horny, but I, I might have glossed over some shit there. Man, Jake's going to be doing a Google search later for Mr.
3: Boogity Fetish. And just... <laughs>
0: Where's my Mr. Boogity Slash Fiction?
3: Okay, I'm
1: going to do that right now. Let's see what our top hit is. So, wrapping up. <laughs> Mr. Boogity Fetish. Oh, what my God. What have I done? It's a Facebook link. It's a Facebook link that says Quick Little Fetish Slash Voodoo Do All Slash Boogity. But so I'm guessing that's a different meaning for Boogity. Probably. Yeah, it sounds
2: like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: let's do yeah. an image search dig deeper ah!
3: <laughs> my retinas
1: mm, Nah, nothing interesting here yep. well when we get to mr boogity <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll commission some artwork what is giant turtles kinder trauma kinder trauma is a sight but what's kinder trauma turtle? is yeah huh all right well anyway that's going to require some deeper diving
0: well now we know it's going to keep everyone occupied on our halloween but for whoever's listening to this, we certainly appreciate you spending part of your Halloween or the autumn season listening to this. After
1: your your candy hangovers listening to us.
0: No, but we certainly appreciate you listening to this episode as always. We appreciate the support. Fun doing a Halloween episode again and yeah, it just every time. Both book and movie. It's great material for the holiday. So it's Yeah, this was a blast. Thank you guys so much and thank you Jake for picking it.
1: I appreciate you guys letting me giving me Halloween as my holiday to pick films so far for the first two years of the pod. Like okay, I, you know,
2: a, you do a good job.
1: You say that now. Next year it's going to be gotcha.
2: <laughs> I was about to ask, are you going to call
1: your shot a year out like Nick did with Hocus Pocus?
0: So it's, that was perfect. It worked <laughs>
1: out. I don't know. I, I'd I'd have to think about it. Uh, you know. I guess we're gonna have to do trick or treat at some point. I was about to say that's that's yeah. kind of the go to. So we keep dancing, but that around that it. feels so. I, I don't know. It feels a little on the nose for us. So we'll we'll see. We'll see. What was what what's the animated Bradbury film? Halloween Tree. Maybe we'll do Halloween Tree next year. Yeah, I'd be down for anything Bradbury. And if we can get James
0: and to join us again for anything Bradbury, we can do the HBO series and
1: make fun of next at some more. Yeah, dude, that's win win. Oh, I'm always down for that. Rich motherfucker.
3: See, here's what you got to do. Okay. Instead of doing the trick-or-treat everyone else knows and loves with Sam, you know, the little pumpkin-headed demon-like, you got to go for the older trick-or-treat, the one with, like, Ozzy Osbourne and yeah! the, the uh, and the lead singer, Kiss. Yeah, we'll do that one.
2: It's, it's, it's rock and
3: roll themed. You'll love it.
1: Do you really not know the lead singer, Kiss's name? I'm half asleep, man. <laughs> That's no excuse. Sure it is. No, it isn't. It's Gene Simmons. Come on, man. I know it's, it's like, Gene Simmons. It's one of the, like, five most famous Jews in the world. And I This was anti-Semitic Halloween, man. <laughs> I'm suggesting his movie. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's a good suggestion, but you knew in second you said the lead singer of Kiss and not Gene Simmons that I was going to jump on it, right? Like, you had to see that coming. Eh. We didn't fight enough this episode. We got to pick a fight here, right? <laughs> We just agreed on shit, man. Who wants to listen to that? Eric's like, I do. I want to listen to that.
0: <laughs> but no, serious. Again, to everyone listening, thank you so much. We appreciate you joining us for this Halloween episode. We hope everyone's having a fabulous spooky season. Ooh. Again, enormous thanks to J.M. Dematas for joining us. Yes. Thank you, J.M. He was great. Wonderful we love goddamn you so time. much. So thank you so much. Can't wait to have him back on. Again, please go check out his Kickstarter. Go check out his novella The Excavator. Just head to spellboundcomics.com to check out the the Multiverse books. We'll put up the Kickstarter link as well. Just an enormous influence on us here at the pod. So it was such a delight to chat with him and such a delight to talk about this film. And we're also very much looking forward to the next episode we have coming out. If all goes as planned, scheduling wise, we've already recorded it. Our next episode is going to be on Lord of Illusions, which is going to be our November special. So, another film we're excited to talk about, and we've got another terrific guest for that one as well. And I really, really can't wait for people to hear that episode.
3: Uh, yes, 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 yes.
0: That's another very special episode for me. So, again, can't wait to bring you that. In the meantime, if you want to follow us on social media, you can. We're at Scary Stuff Pod on Twitter and on Letterboxd. We have a list there of all the movies we've done with links. You can also follow us on Instagram. We're at Scary Stuff Podcast. Our website is scarystuffpodcast.com. And if you've dug what you listened to and you want to leave us a review wherever you get your pods, that'd be terrific. But first and foremost, we just hope you've enjoyed listening to this. And again, we appreciate every bit of support. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you, everybody. So we will be back
0: in a couple weeks at the latest with our Lord of Illusions episode. But in the meantime, this is Eric signing off
3: saying thanks again. This is Nick saying, "We are the hungry ones. Your torments
1: call us like dogs in the night. And we do feed and feed well. This is Jacob saying the lightning rod salesman remembered to fire Doc Rivers. (laughs) Good night, everybody. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Good night. Happy Halloween.
0: Happy Halloween, everybody.
1: Happy Halloween! So it was on HBO. Yes.